a vision that tells us that we belong to something that is greater than ourselves, that we are not, that none of us are alone. I share that. I wish that everyone, if even for one moment, could feel that awe and humility and the hope. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I'm Patrick Rapole. Oh, and I'm Jim Laskowski. Ooh. Yeah. I did that last episode. I'm going to start keeping that because it, you know, emphasizes my excitement to say my name. There's no tradition like a new tradition. Indeed. And, uh, well, it's starting to become a tradition to, <laughs> based on the last bonus episode. Um, we have a returning guest, uh, a favorite to the show, a friend to the show. And he's a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association. Uh, he contributes to WGN's uh, Nick DiGiulio's radio show every Friday night. And, of course, he writes for eFilmCritic.com. Welcome back, Eric Childress. Thank you guys for having me, as always. Very excited to talk about a uh, favorite director of mine, Robert Zemeckis. Yep, mine too. Mm Mm-hmm. It's going to be an interesting episode, indeed. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. I said something foreboding there in that statement. Well, I I did not uh, concur with you two, so I mean that, that's a little right. preview. Though I do want to say ahead of time, the two movies we're going to discuss: Forrest Gump and Contact, uh, which I'm eager to discuss because they'll be you know they're interesting movies to For talk sure. about. Uh, I want to go ahead and warn everybody now that w- my opinion of those two movies doesn't represent my opinion of Zemeckis as a whole. I think he's made two masterpieces, and I think in general he makes pretty good movies. Uh, at least, I mean, before the '90s, he did. So that, <laughs> so the fact that I will be really, I just really hate those movies. Don't let that make you think I don't love Who Framed Roger Rabbit or Back to the Future or hate. that the other the sequels. That's a pretty solid series as far as franchises go. I completely agree. It's so one of my favorite trilogies. Yeah, you know, we'll touch upon that for sure. Um, Eric, I really want to hear a little bit about, because I know it was a big undertaking and a very successful endeavor, but the Chicago Film Critics Awards recently took place at the uh, Movie Co. in Rosemont. So I'm very curious to hear about how the ceremony went in general. Well, in general, it went uh, pretty pretty well, actually. I Great. mean, we had, we had a sold-out house. 
uh, which is always nice to have. Um, the, the Movie Co. was uh, very generous to uh, sort of be our partner in this year's endeavor. And, uh, I mean, we had a, an award show in a movie theater, and we, you know, a, st- a lovely stage was concocted, and we had a band, which I can't remember, I don't wow. remember if we've ever had a band there before. Actually, like, uh, you know, whisking the you know the the presenters on stage and whatnot. Um, I was so focused in the moment when I was doing my presentation, I completely forgot to figure out what song the band was playing as I was going on stage because we were doing that prior uh, prior to that. Um, but uh, no, I mean it was it was a really it was a really good house. Um, there were some some technical difficulties, I guess, uh, made the show start late. Um, at least that's the explanation we heard. Um, and uh, the show ran uh, a little bit longer than anticipated because uh, we we basically allowed people to talk. Uh, <laughs> and that included uh, Paul Servino, who uh, we gave the commitment to craft uh, award to, and uh, he went up there without uh, you know without you know a prepared speech, at least nothing on paper. Um, I be shocked if he memorized what he said but he i mean he spoke for a good 15 minutes at least wow just, just going over you know not not just the appreciation but his his career and the the, the, the craft of acting he, he talked a lot about that um it, it, was, it was really quite quite an amazing uh speech and you know unlike the oscars or other award shows and whatnot normally you get you know if you're lucky you get a minute to say what say your piece and then you're you know you're whisked off stage by the band here we we, we just let them go you know and you know you let the, let the audience get their money's worth as far as i'm concerned if we're awarding people that i think they have every right to uh to, to, to speak as long as they want you know if he would have gone for a half hour we might have had to cut him off but you know but 15 minutes even 20 minutes it's paul Servino for god's sakes let him you, talk no of course and uh i know that uh jane lynch also received uh, an honorary award which is great to hear. And uh, yeah. previous guest Colin Suter put together the clips for that, I believe, which is awesome. Yeah, we sort of. I uh, we uh, I was sort of in charge the last two years. Now I've been sort of in charge of selecting uh, not just the award clips, though, for like the winners, the various awards and whatnot, uh, but also um, uh, some of the special achievement awards. Last year I, I chose a whole bunch of clips for Dennis Farina, uh, a few for James Earl Jones. This year I ch- chose all of the Jane Lynch clips and all of the Paul Servino clips. And oh, uh, and Colin did an edit, and uh, our sort of official editors. Did their own edits, you know, but they, they used a lot of the stuff and some of the uh, some of the ideas that Colin had. Unfortunately, not all of them, but that's neither that's that's behind the scenes stuff that has you know has no bearing on how the show came out. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so yeah, no, I mean we it was it was very successful, and you know to have a an after party at the movie co at the Bogarts Grill upstairs, upstairs uh, where all the celebrities were stayed. They all stayed and they all hung out and they ate and they took pictures and they talked with guests. Oh, nice! So, so it was just—it's really wonderful. It was really, you know, kind of quintessential Chicago. You know, it was just—you know—it was just it was serious, like big shoulders, gracious people, not being bothered. Um, it, it was really—it was a really wonderful night. It really was. Happy to hear it. I'm glad it was a great success for you guys because. You know, you, you deserve it, and I know that there are some great things in the works. If uh, I know you probably don't want to tip your hat right away and sort yeah, of I'm let on. Of, yeah, well, let's just say that uh, within the next couple of weeks, uh, there should be a uh, release about uh, what we're sort of hinting at right now. Keep your, keep your calendars open for a weekend in April. That's all I'm saying. 
Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, I think for us, we uh, don't have any big announcements to make uh, nope. off the top of our heads, so I think we're ready to move on to the What We Watch segment, correct? Certainly. Great. Here. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Smell the success. Success. Devil in a blue dress. Blue dress. The man knew too much. Too much. She's a film that we watch. Movie, movie, movie. These are films that we watch. We watch. She's a film that we watch. Movie, movie, movie. These are films that we watch. We watch. She's a film that we watch. I'm very curious to hear about um, some of the things you've been seeing lately. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, did you recently see the new Die Hard film? I most certainly did. I saw it last evening, as a matter of fact. Mm. So, what is the consensus on that one? Because I'm a little skeptical myself, having you know not been too big on the, on the uh, last entry in the series myself. Are you one of the ones that are, I mean, both, I'll ask this for both of you, are you guys the ones that not a fan of the Len Wiseman thing, or does your sort of your, you know, your letdown of the series go back a little bit further to maybe the third or even the second one? I'm no purist. I don't really care. Like, John McClane as a character mm-hmm. isn't the most interesting thing about the first Die Hard. Like, the first, great thing about the first Die Hard is all the pacing and the script and the editing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, you know, Side really well made. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that, oh, the fourth one, he's no longer an everyday man, I'm not, I don't give a shit. So I, I kind of like the fourth one. It's, like, super dumb, and I think that Timmy, Timothy Oliphant was the, <laughs> I think he's a really bad, like, main villain. But I, I liked it for what it was. Uh, I didn't hate it. I'm not a fan of Len Wiseman in general. I just, no. I didn't, I didn't think too much of the fourth one. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, it's ridiculous and over the top, and it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it just lost something for me, and I'm I'm worried of, because I'm more, you know, I I fear that it's kind of going down the same territory with this one, at least based on the trailer. Yeah. Um, well, your suspicions um, are, are very much confirmed, mm. um, and I don't think they go far enough, actually, um, because unlike Patrick, where, you know, he's, you don't really care that John McClane was an everyman, he, he might not be the most interesting character in, in the world. I, I mean, I, I'll grant you that aspect of it, but the idea of the way that that character behaved in the first movie is really what, one of the things that separates the Die Hard films, uh, especially the first one, from a lot of those, you know, uber macho films of the, action films of the 1980s, and that he was, in in most respects, an everyman who, he was afraid to die. He was he was af- he was afraid to die, and he was he was cocky and he was arrogant, and he played with the terrorists in a little bit. But when you know the shit hit the fan, you know he was you know he was getting his ass kicked <laughs> in that movie. Sure. Um, so even by like by the third one, which is you know completely kind of ridiculous and over the top, um, at, at, at the very least he bled a lot in that movie. I mean he was the guy was the guy you know the whole movie he's suffering with a hangover. Uh, and he's just, he's just bleeding throughout that entire movie. Now we have the fifth movie, which the fourth movie was a cartoon, and Oliphant was an interesting villain, and he's jumping on jets and all that kind of <laughs> crap. Uh, and this one, he barely bleeds. 
you know, it's, it's it's almost like one of those like scenes, like a parody where someone gets hit a lot, um, and they got blood on their face, and then almost like Frank Drebin, where he just kind of you know he's able to magically repair himself right away, you know. Yeah. Okay, so something like that. That's how this one feels. It's just like he's getting his ass beat, and there's no blood, and then he falls down, and then he's got like some blood makeup on him, but then that's gone. Okay, there's like no physicality to this thing other than he's a cartoon character, and it's it, the action in the movie is absolutely horrendously put together. There are ideas of carnage that would be interesting in the hands of a director who knew how to have fun with that sort of over-the-topness, um, and that sort of over-the-topness might work in its own stupid action thing, but w- when you have the character of John McClane and, you know, now de- you know, dealing with his grown-up son, who is in the CIA, for God's sakes, um, you know, hearing hear him say stuff like, hey, we're McClane's, this is what we do. Really? Were you saying that in 1988 when the terrorists took over Nakatomi? Yeah, this is Dom John McClane, this is what I do. Yeah, but it's not going to be the same. I mean, number one, of course there's no physicality. He's old. Like, there's no there's no possibility of a Die Hard sequel. There's no, like, there's no possible reality that exists in which Bruce Willis is a very, gives a very physical performance in 2013, or in 2012, I guess, when this is shot. Um, like, uh, which, if you want to say, well, then don't do Die Hard sequels. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, but... Uh, you know, like no. It, but the point is, is not that he's not giving a physical performance. He he is getting thrown around this th- this movie with uh, that uh, that a, seriously, that a twenty five year old would not survive, let alone someone at, at his advanced age. Even if he is playing like a, a minor fifty year old, I don't know what his age is supposed to be in the movie. He's clearly older, and he's taken bits, hits, and just thrown out of wind, running out of windows, down like 16 flights through, you know, hitting every branch on the way down kind of stuff. Um, just absolutely insane. I mean, the, the, the climax of this movie takes place at Chernobyl, okay? I'm, you know, we, we, you'd think it's funny, but, I mean, th- this movie absolutely has the all-time funniest, hey, the radiation isn't so bad, we can take our suits off moment that I've ever seen in a movie. You know, this, all, this, all the space pictures always have that moment where the one asshole takes off, off the helmet. Yes. It's like, oh, there's air here. I'm going to try and take this off and see if I can breathe. And my head might not explode or I might die. And they do it, and of course, everything's fine. Here they're at Chernobyl. And they're, the, the bad guys are in the radiation suits, and the radiation levels go down to like a 30% level. And they go, oh, the radiation level's not so bad here. We can take off our suits. Oh, yeah, we're in Chernobyl. Okay. <laughs> Mm. There, there is more realism in the Chernobyl Diaries than there is in this movie. But is, I mean, this is the fifth Die Hard movie. In what, like, why on earth would you ever expect? Re- I'm not saying it's good. I have not seen the film, but this is. These are a lot of the things that were said about the fourth film. Yes. yes. Why does it need to be realistic? It. Why can't it be a cartoon? Because it didn't start off as a cartoon. Okay. Well, I mean, so it has to stay the same. How could a man go through? Oh, I'm in the same situation. Like that was the joke. I mean, Ben Stiller showed it a joke about the fact that John McClane keeps finding himself in this situation over and over again. Like, how on earth could it be the same? We did not expect any sort of consistency in this character and the whole idea, the foundation that this thing was based on. And I'm not saying that this is even the biggest problem with this movie. This is just the the direction that we're headed in. The the bigger problem in the movie is that it was directed by John Moore. And I believe that's all I need to really say. 
Okay, well, you John. might need to say more. I don't know what he's directed. What else has he done? Uh, Behind Enemy Lines. Max Payne. Oh. Um, the Omen remake. Fl- the Flight of the Phoenix remake. Uh-huh. So this is just like a sort yeah. of a cash on the name. They don't... They don't <laughs> you mean... No, I like the Omen remake. <laughs> I mean, considering that this was also this was a script that was never meant to be a Die Hard movie to begin with. Isn't it's, that true of most Die Hard sequels? Um, the, the third one, yes, and the fourth one as well. Was the fourth one based mm-hmm. on the book? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. The third one, fourth one, was a, a different script that they rewrote as a Die Hard movie. Okay, that was the same thing. For the third one was based on a book called Simon Says. Mm. So they, they right. wedged John McClane in that, but they wedged, they wedged it in at least and it had a connection with the Die Hard movies. This, the, the, you know, you know, who thought in 1988 that you know these kids were going to get their own spinoff movies? You know, come home, and you know she's in the she's the gets kidnapped in the fourth movie. Um, no, I mean the, the the biggest problem with the movie is that it's just an incompetently made action movie. Right. You know, it's it starts off. You know, it starts off. You know, at, you know, at eleven when you're still trying to figure out what the hell's going on, and all the Die Hard movies have kind of had that element to it that's I think worked very well in the first few where you weren't quite sure what the bad guy's plan was, and there's always a twist on exactly what they were after kind of thing, and I think that worked to some degree, and they have that here in this one too. But you're you're so playing catch up, and you're so you know, just so over the top. There's sort of a headache-inducing level to uh, the, the sort of the first big action sequence in the movie, which just, it's just absolutely insane. Um, it it, it's just, it puts you, it keeps you off tilt from the very beginning, and that just keeps pushing you further over. Well, the I don't know. I guess at this point, I'm not expecting plausibility, <laughs> and you know, even if it reaches like you know Michael Bay levels, it's it's tough because like I Michael see, Bay levels of what? I mean, just in terms of the you know over uh, just exaggerated action sequences were things that never you know nobody could walk away from that unscathed. You know, mm-hmm. I mean that that sort of level of action in an action movie. If it's done well, if it's, you know, I can tell what's going on, if, and if at least it's fun and entertaining, then I'm, I can get on board with it. Yeah, the most, I mean, we watched The Last Stand. Yeah. Um, the most you could hope for is that they sort of assimilate the history of, I mean, you don't need to assimilate the history of Die Hard because it's just, it's stupid. Like, none of, I don't personally think any of the sequels are that good. I don't think the second Die Hard is that good, even nope. though a lot of people love to say it's almost as good as the first. I don't think it's even nearly close. Uh-uh. The best you can do, the best you can hope for in a movie like this is, I mean, number one, anyone, any like rational thinking person would just go into this knowing it's a Bruce Willis action movie that they put the word Die Hard on, that it's not going to have anything to do with the first one or the second one. Like, because... That's just not what they do anymore. Right. The best you can hope for is that they are able to incorporate Bruce Willis in an action movie that works in in a way that works. Mm-hmm. But we, have, we I think we've also also gotten to the point, Die Hard or not, that we know when Bruce Willis really cares about the movie he's making. Yeah. Yeah. You no, know, you saw that in Looper for sure. Okay? Um, you know when he's just cashing a paycheck, and you see that here. You know, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise, but you know, I think there there was a level in the first couple ones where it seemed like he actually did care that he was incorporating, you know, in, into the mindset of this character. Here, it's just Bruce Willis, you know, not not even a, really a parody of himself. He's just kind of doing lines, 
You know, there's just there's just no there's no fire to it. There's no I mean all the all the laugh lines in the movie fall completely dead and flat. Uh, I mean, just everything about this movie is just a travesty. Mm-hmm. That's a shame. That's about what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, I did manage to catch up with. Uh, I, I didn't want to make this my uh, what we watched movie, but. I did catch up with Bullet to the Head, and I was kind of disappointed with it. Oh, yeah. I, it wasn't as much fun as The Last Stand. It took itself very seriously. I, I mean, sort of Peter. These out. are action movies starring old people. You I know. already deal it like I don't like if you go into a movie with Sylvester Stallone in an action movie, your expectations automatically have to be way lowered. Oh, it is. I mean, it Bruce is. Willis or Arnold or Schwarzenegger, like all these, like oh, these are action movies that already have significant hurdles to jump, which right. is that their leads can barely move. Yeah, but I mean, we had the the wonderful interplay with. I mean, I know that Last Stand suffered from too many of uh, intercutting with the Forrest Whitaker FBI yeah, sort of born identity. Horrible script problem. Yeah. Uh, structural problems. For I sure. agree. I totally agree. But you had the the great side characters with you know Louis Guzman and Johnny Knoxville yeah, exactly. and all that. That's that's a lot of fun. Uh, Last Stand is an example of a movie that knew what to do. I, yeah. I imagine they honestly didn't have a lot of time to shoot with Arnold because they shoot around him a lot by having a lot of scenes mm-hmm. of all the other characters. But they made the best of that, and they made it at work. I mean, Bullet to the Head has, you know, graphic violence and boobs and some Walter Hill trademarks and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I just kind of shrugged it off. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe part of me was, like, hoping for something a little bit, uh... I don't know, more, ex- not, not necessarily extreme, but something along the lines of Cobra where I can enjoy it right. on a on more. A more top. Yeah, yeah. And well, silly. Yeah. And it really didn't have that going for it. No. And I felt like by the end it wore out its welcome. That's actually one of the, I think, one of the chief strengths of Last Stand mm-hmm. is action movies these days, they're not able to be casually silly. Yeah. Like a lot, they either have to be fucking drive angry where they're just like, oh, we're over the top and crazy. Right. Or they have to take themselves way too seriously. Like, I haven't seen the second Expendables movie. I imagine the Expendables is interesting because the first movie actually takes itself too seriously. Yeah. And just from what I've seen of the second movie, it has the opposite problem where it's like, mm-hmm. look how crazy. Crazy everything is. We're right. crazy. And, but Last Stand is actually able to be silly without drawing too much of attention to itself. It's able to have Louise Guzman in a 10-gallon hat <laughs> yeah. like, firing a Tommy gun. That was so much fun. <laughs> and, and not like have some horrible joke about it. Mm-hmm. Well, the one I wanted to bring up For sure. is um, – this guy that you're very familiar with because he directed a movie that you like more than me. And uh, we saw this, I believe it was the sci-fi spectacular at the music Ooh, box. Ooh, you saw the new Quentin Depot movie. I did! I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. <laughs> I'm, I don't know either. Yeah. But, um, wrong. I, uh, huh. no. Not wrong? It, you're, you're right. I'm right. You're right. It's wrong. It is, is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um... I don't know. Third base. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I, I'm, I actually want to revisit Rubber now. Yeah. Because uh, I kind of loved Wrong. I really did. Uh, it's almost like a weirder, quirkier take on something like the, uh, like the Adjustment Bureau. It has a lot of these 
sort of strange detours that don't make a What's lot of sense. What's the plot of Wrong? <laughs> it doesn't have much <laughs> okay. of a plot. But no. it's it's basically a, a guy loses his dog. Um, he sets out to find it one Oh, it's morning. Wendy and Lucy. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's Wendy and Lucy, basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. He sets out to find it one morning, and he kind of uncovers this conspiracy going on. Uh, and... He's, he sort of finds out that he's kind of the victim of a mysterious plan. These forces sort of set in motion that uh, he eventually uncovers, and it's it's very strange. And William Fickner is sort of at the center of it, and he's playing. God, I just imagine him in the, in like the Udo Kier role, like he's sort of doing an impersonation of him in some ways. It's a very strange performance, but it's hilarious. Um, it's like, it, I mean, if Michelle Gondry did, like, Groundhog Day, I mean, not, it's not no. necessarily, like... <laughs> the sheer amount of references you're throwing out that are, like, incongruous really make me want to see this. <laughs> well, it's it doesn't have, like, necessarily, like, he repeats the same day, but he's sort of repeating a lot of the, these strange interactions with random people. And it's very surreal. It's very absurd. I mean, it has the same sensibilities of rubber, but it doesn't wear out its welcome for me like rubber did. I thought it was really distinctive. Uh, And, I mean, there's just, like, weird non-sequiturs, characters that show up for no reason that say, hey, I painted your blue car red for you. (laughs) And it's, it's... it makes you wonder what, the, why that choice, but you're also laughing throughout. Um, I mean, I think the pacing is kind of off, which also I felt like with Rubber too, but it's this sort of strange existential puzzle, which I kind of gravitate towards. I love those types of movies in general. Um, but does it, it take the puzzle seriously, or is it more like mocking the idea of... I, I would say it's mocking it. I mean... Once he sort of dives into William Fickner's philosophy and he like William Fickner offers him like these books and he starts reading it um, and sort of uh, it becomes about like achieving telepathy with dogs and whether that's possible or not. And are you sure you didn't just read a Kurt Vonnegut book? It's very much <laughs> like a Kurt Vonnegut book, um, but it's. It's hard to know exactly thematically what the movie is trying to say. Yeah. But you're enjoying it. I I feel like Rubber uh, is a movie that is has like sort of interesting thematic things going on, but it, that's not its chief strength. Its chief yeah. strength is just that it's kind of weird and like hilarious, like a surreal comedy. That's what Wrong is. Yeah. But it, it, this one worked for me more, but it definitely makes me want to reassess Rubber because mm-hmm. I like this one so much. Um you know, I think the the film at times sort of manages to like uh, deconstruct like social interactions, when conversations and interactions are are seem really jumbled at times and kind of unrealistic. And like you know, uh, a woman just decides to move in with this guy for no reason. And this is the type of movie where a palm tree turns into a pine tree for no reason, and you don't question it because like the reality that the filmmaker creates is so interesting and and set up at the very beginning that you kind of just go with it and whether if it all adds up to something i'm not sure maybe on a second viewing i'll even get more out of it and i kind of want to because it's such an enjoyable experience 
Um, I, I I really responded to this movie in a way that I can't pinpoint, but it's it's really great. Eric, <laughs> Eric, have you seen this film? I have. I saw it at Sundance last year, um, and it, it's it's a film that. I, I, I clearly I, I didn't know what to make of when I first saw it, and like in between, I mean there are some big laughs in the movie, but in be, but in between I did feel myself you know getting bored a little bit, um, and it, it, it's a weird film to drop into the middle of a Sundance festival where you're seeing you know a lot of real downbeat dramas and relationship stories and stuff like that, uh, and then you get this really just. You know, really bizarre. And I had not seen I had not seen Rubber, so I didn't know what, exactly what I was in for seeing this movie to begin with. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it's a film that I'd be willing to revisit um, now that I've had some space away from it. I know what to expect going in, uh, but at the time, I kind of dismissed it. Yeah, I don't know. Rubber has a very odd pace too. but yeah. I, just, I just love the hell. Of, it's so funny to me. Um, Wrong really made me laugh yeah. pretty consistently. I mean, it has that sort of... That's on demand now, right? Yeah. It has a really absurd, surreal sense of humor. And the, char- the characters don't have the same stoicism of a Hal Hartley movie, but some of their interactions are just like really questionable in that sort of offbeat way that I really find funny. Yeah. So. Well, I of all of the references you've made, that's the one that excites <laughs> me the least is Hal fucking Hartley. But, no, I'll definitely try to see this. I don't have any kind of cable or any way to view it on demand. But I'll, I'll, I'll just thought you it. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll get you your fix. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Mr. Pusher Man. Mm-hmm. So, wrong. What did you see? I saw the sweet – it's just called Sweet Smell of Success. I haven't seen it in years. Oh my god! God, it's holy been a long shit! Time. Yeah, it blew me away. It I should was... rewatch that. It's on Criterion, isn't it? Uh, is it now? I think it, there's an old Criterion version of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, the one I saw I got from the yeah. library, and it yeah. was an MGM release. Mm, so yes. it was. But uh, oh my god, Sweet Smell of Success uh, is just Great. like this perfect movie. Great it's from 1957. Uh, with Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. And, Fucking uh, amazing. Tony Curtis plays this talent agent um, in New York, and it takes place over the couple of days. And basically, uh, he's been shut out of a character. Uh, I forget I, per- I forget Burt Lancaster's character's name, um, but he basically plays a Walter Winchell stand-in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been sort of shut out of his extremely popular uh, column um, because he's neat, cause he asked him to uh, break up Burt Lanca- uh, Lancaster's sister is dating a jazz musician, and Burt Lancaster asked Tony Curtis to break them up, and he failed to. So now it's Tony Curtis sort of right on the edge, and he's dangling on a string, like trying to keep his livelihood, um, trying to get these two people breaking up. And he's pull it, and it's it's this like massive uh, experience of all this politicking, where there's all these people, and they're all sort of hooked in, and it's you're selling secrets, and it's all, yeah, it's every good political thriller you've ever seen. It's all of the joys of that, but um, like with this script that has dialogue that like every other line is just like extremely quotable and. Uh, it's super dark, especially for a movie from 1957. It's mm. he he just ruins marriages and he like pimps out his friends. Like literally, like there's a cigarette girl who asks for his help and he 
and he basically convinces her to have sex with a newspaper columnist in order to get ahead. Like, oh, yeah. like there's all sorts of shit that goes down, and he just leaves this huge wake of dev- uh, devastation. And 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 what's really interesting about the character isn't that he's merciless; it's that every once in a while, like his morality does creep up on him, but it only creeps up on him when he's losing, like when. As long as he's winning, he doesn't care, and he'll be as nasty as he wants to be. But it's only like when he thinks he might actually lose, and he might have to confront with what he's done that mm-hmm. he sort of faces that. So it's this really brilliant character study. It's really fascinating. It's really fast paced and fun and dark, and all the dialogue's amazing. And there's a great sort of jazzy uh, score. And they they do some great stuff shooting like in Times Square. You can tell oh, that yeah. stuff is shot on location that. because all of the dialogue it has has is all ADR. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so it like has a really strong sense of place. And again, like it's a thriller, like a political thriller. So all these sort of pieces come together, and it's all these moving parts, and it's this just the tension keeps tightening. It's just one of my new favorite films it's ever. It's a really taut um, movie. It's did like you really... just pull up? Did you pull up the IMDb just now? Um, I, I saw you going yeah. to. Uh, who directed this? Hold on, Alexander McKendrick. What else did he direct? Um, I know he directed one other thing that I really liked. Oh, he di- he directed the original um, Lady Killers the year before. Oh, a couple years before. So is he a British director? Um, Scottish. Scottish. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Sweet Smell of Success is just this, yeah, incredible movie that, uh, yeah, just one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, Tony Curtis's character is amazing. Oh, oh, Burt Lancaster. Okay, playing uh, JJ, uh, I think it's the character's first name. Uh, he's this guy who keeps getting you know you keep hearing about him in all in all the opening scenes because mm-hmm. you know Tony Curtis is cursing him and trying to figure out how to get on his good side again and in his graces and everyone's talking about him like he's this huge thing and then you get there um, he gets to this restaurant where JJ is and he's just this sort of small man like who's hiding behind these big glasses who's like not moving and the o- first scene with Burt Lancaster where Tony Curtis walks up to his table. It's just incredible because Burt Lancaster is just – he's barely – like he has a cigarette in his hand. He's barely even moving his arm and he's just cutting down everybody. He's having dinner with uh, with like a young ingenue, her sort of manager and a senator and he's just like cutting into everybody. And people walk up to the table like asking him for favors like he's the godfather and he just destroys them. And someone calls on the phone and he says like five words and – and that kills that like he's like just shown as the most powerful man and you know it, it, that's sort of a challenge of films a lot is how do you establish someone as being extremely powerful in a way that's cinematic and that opening scene yeah. I think, does better than any other film I've ever seen where you just it's almost sort of like you watch Boys in the Band right? Oh yeah. The character whose birthday party it is. Oh yeah. You remember when he first shows up? Oh yeah. And then just like <laughs> With just, the fro, everyone's yeah. been talking about him, and then he finally yeah. gets there, and mm-hmm. he's just so subdued that everything he says has so much power. It's about body language, yeah. the way he presents himself. Yeah, it's sort of a similar yeah. thing. Yeah, totally. uh, have you seen you've seen Sweet Smell of Success, right, Eric? Oh yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a, a couple years uh, since the last time I saw it, uh, but it, it's, it's definitely a good movie. 
Oh, yeah. I remember, God, I think I saw this in 97 or 98 when I was working at a video store. And I was talking to this guy who was huge into screenwriting, and I was starting to get into writing screenplays. And uh, I told him, like, man, I'm so huge into, like, Patty Chayefsky and David Mamet. What can you recommend to me that would be in the same vein from the past? Oh, yeah. That and, very, it's very Mamet, actually. Yeah, yeah, and he recommended this to me, and we had it in our video stores. And I haven't seen it since, but... I remember eating this one alive. I, I thought it was incredible. I didn't even think about it in terms of mammoth. That's true. It's very much this guy who's in this thing, and the thing is swallowing him whole, and it's how this individual's getting lost, and the more he struggles to sort of put himself in the right, the deeper he gets in. And yeah. That's, uh, I can't, yeah, I imagine this is extremely influential to mammoth. Oh, for sure. I would think so. This is the kind of movie, especially even just based on the dialogue. I mean, the characters are really strong, but based on the dialogue alone, it makes you want to write a screenplay. Ooh. It's one of those types of movies, for sure. Uh-huh. And it's just so, yeah, it's just overwhelmingly dark. I don't want to ruin the ending, but it's, uh, as you might imagine, it's not exactly happy, uh, and it's just this sort of, yeah, it's just ruins and... Uh, it's horror. It's just all types of people being really horrible to each other. Kind of like Ace in the Hole. A yeah. little bit. Yeah. I'd say it's a more I like it more than Ace in the Hole. It's a little more intense. It's a little faster paced, but it's similar. Also, Ace in the Hole, uh, uh, Kirk Douglas sort of plays this big fish yeah. in a small pond, and that's how he's able to sort of manufacture this thing. Is he mm-hmm. so whereas What's amazing about this film is Tony Curtis is really good at what he does. He's extremely fast talking and he tells everyone what they want to hear. And he's, who's that? Okay, I'm not answering that phone call. I'll answer this phone call. I'll say this. He meets people. He gets, he taps people on the shoulder. Like he, you see him working and he's extremely capable. And yet he's such a low place on the totem pole. It just says so much about everyone else. Right. It's that one of my favorite lines in Zero Dark Thirty is the moment in the elevator where James Gandolfini's consulting his lesser. And it's like, what do you think? And she goes, oh, she's so smart. And he just, yeah, we all are, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great because a lot of movies, and we might talk about this later in terms of contact. I don't want to get into a contact discussion now, but a lot of movies, they feature one person who knows everything, and it's just everyone else are just obstacles in their way who are just too dumb and who are just, no, you don't understand. If you just listen to this... And, and that's like that's what Sweet Smell of Success does so well is every single character, however minor, is trying to work their own angle, and they yeah. are all good at what they do. So it's just Sign fascinating equal to watch. in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes me really want to rewatch this again because yeah. it's been a long time. I like, actually I heard about it on a video game podcast. Oh, um, because Idle they were, Thumbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I no, I think it would actually be the. I can't remember because I think two of the guys on the Idle Thumbs podcast, too, by the way, if you haven't heard me talk about it last episode, they're really, really fucking it's good, very good video game podcast. Um, two of the guys were key key writers on the Walking Dead game, and they were oh. interviewed. And people asked them, oh, and the interviewers asked them, what other sort of franchises would you like to work with? And they were sort of coy because they can't. They, they didn't want to say too much or ha- start any rumors. But they said they said basically all the things, all the kind of games they'd want to make, they couldn't make because it'd be something like the sweet smell of success. They talk about like oh, they'd love to make a sweet smell of success game where you have to sort of politic around and manipulate people. Uh, so that's how I 
first heard of it, and then I watched it, and it's just, yeah, blew me away. Sweet Smell of Success is fucking incredible. Good choice. Yeah. Well, I think that'll wrap up the What We Watch segment. The What We Watch segment. Yes. And now we are ready and to now. rumble. Oh, I, I thought you were doing like a 40s radio voice. Like, and now Lucky Strikes presents. The Martians have landed. The Martians have landed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this you, is it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. The, the direct discussion. Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis. Um. What movie did you write that's fun? I know you're good friends with Spielberg. You co-wrote 1941. Get in contact with Forrest Gump. And show me the stone that you romanced on. You did performance capture. I don't mind. Back to the future, one of my favorites of all time. That rocks a Maggie Sky. That rocks a Maggie Sky. Robert Zemeckis was born in Chicago, Illinois, and he grew up on the South Side. As a child, he loved television and was fascinated by his parents' 8mm film home video camera. And he started off by filming family events like birthdays and holidays, and eventually, oh, he began producing narrative films with his friends that incorporated stop-motion work and other special effects. He became enamored with television, and then eventually, after seeing the film Bonnie and Clyde with his father and being very influenced by it, he decided he wanted to go to film school, and that's exactly where he went to over at the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts, and went into the film school and the strength of an essay and a music video based on a Beatles song. Segwaying into his debut feature film, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Then, his next effort, a crazy screwball comedy about used car salesmen, aptly titled Used Car, starring Kurt Russell, was very well received critically. And Pauline Kael was absolutely enamored with that particular comedy classic. Although both films did not succeed commercially, and his uh, script effort with Spielberg's 1941 was also a flop, he eventually went on to some great success with the film Romancing the Stone. And after that, he finally had some clout to direct an amazing, extraordinary, incredible time travel comedy that would go on to be an all-time classic masterpiece known as Back to the Future. But then something happened in the year 1994, a very important year for film, in which he uh, went on to create a Oscar-winning, extraordinary uh, underdog story known as Forrest Gump, 
who a character unwillingly participates in some of the major events of the 20th century. And it was this he won several Academy Awards, and it became the top-grossing film of 1994. Let's hear more about this film, as well as the follow-up that is somewhat divisive, as you will soon hear. So... Throughout the 80s, Zemeckis had, you know, established himself as sort of a premier director of kind of escapist entertainment. Just really, you know, strong comedies like Back to the Future, uh, you know, Romancing the Stone. Used uh, cars. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, the, you know, Death Becomes Her. He framed himself as sort of uh, a, a, a guy who makes populist entertainment but does it using, you know... Uh, cutting-edge technology. Um, he lived in Spielberg's shadow, some would say. Well, yeah, but, you know. But he, people did, though. I, yeah, I, I yeah. never looked at that period as any, like, some of these directors living in their shadows, but, you know, sure. that they were sort of given their their opportunity from Spielberg. And Spielberg right. was just kind of there as their, you know, they're their not f- fall backwards. We're, we're damning a lot of people with faint praise. Let's, just, let's move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dumb people might just say, oh, produced by Steven Spielberg and do that. But I yeah. think Zemeckis certainly ha- had a re- his own reputation. Who framed Roger Rabbit was mm-hmm. an astounding achievement. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until 1994's Forrest Gump that he actually sort of decided to attempt... Uh, what I would like a serious movie, a drama, something. He said his sights a little bigger, um, and uh, okay. Um, maybe the best way to do this would to have you guys start off. I don't want to taint the whole conversation with my perspective and turn it into an attack defense thing. So, uh, and it, and believe me, it will if I start because I just I. I have no limit of bad things to say about this film. But before I do, uh, uh, Jim. Well, we all know by now, because I've said it many times on this podcast, that Back to the Future changed my life. Mm -hmm. It was the first movie I saw in the theater as a kid that made me fall in love with movies to where I wanted to see it more than once. Mm -hmm. It was the first movie that my dad and I bonded over, and it'll forever be a favorite. And still, in my opinion, the best Zemeckis movie. Now, I saw Forrest Gump in a theater uh, on a date in a little mom-and-pop theater back in 1994, around the same time I saw Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption. So, uh, that was a good year. (laughs) I was completely enamored with film all over again, and I knew who Zemeckis was, and at the time, I chose to embrace this movie with open arms. Now... I don't think it's one of his all-time great films that I revisit as much as others. But when I do watch it, I tend to laugh and smile throughout most of, the, of its running time. Its sort of schmaltziness doesn't get nauseating. The music cues don't really... I mean, at this point in time, you know, maybe... No, not maybe, but like... A lot of them have been overused, to say the least. I realize that. But I find that to be incredibly endearing because the lead can, lead character himself is endearing and lovable, despite being uh, a simpleton. Um, I just, I again, I think it's warm and it is escapist entertainment. Now, I, I 
don't know why the political angles kind of get the better of some people. Because uh, they're extremely dominant. Go ahead. Oh, okay. But, but I didn't – maybe it's because my brain at 16, 17 didn't pick up on those at the time. But what about now? Um, well, yeah, I'm. I can see them, but I don't focus on them in a way that makes me sort of, you know, uh, begrudge the movie either. Like I don't like start, you know, thinking he had any sort of political statement to make. No, I, don't. I think I I agree. I think it was completely accident. I think it was completely accidental. He made a horribly offensive movie. Oh, okay. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Uh, this is gonna get ugly. Yeah. No, I, I, I certainly – I can roll my eyes at some of the overquoted dialogue because as far as I know, most boxes of chocolate come with a sheet listing what all the chocolates are inside. Mm-hmm. So, um, not true. Not true. Oh, okay. Nowadays, nowadays, maybe not in 1994. Nowadays, I think it's true. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> and there are definitely some you know ridiculous moments uh, – that don't work, like where one of the political activists slaps um, uh, Jenny in slow motion during the Black Panthers meeting. I mean, now I sort of kind of don't think that is uh, an effective moment other than like, okay, we see, you know, Forrest defending her once again, which is, you know, I just, in that context, I think it's kind of a, a silly scene more the, you know it doesn't the dramatic weight of the movie doesn't necessarily affect me as much uh I, th- I i more look at it as a good fun escapist piece of entertainment that has really good like chemistry be- and friendship that he forms with like i think i think gary sinise is great in this movie i really like his character I think that you know once they're on the uh, shrimp boat together, I think they, all that all that stuff is great, great chemistry. It's about four scenes. <laughs> I like I like you know his friendship with Bubba. I know that's short lived, of course, and I I wouldn't I find this movie to be just really entertaining. I have always had a soft spot for it, um, but like I said, it's not in the upper tier of Zemeckis for me in general in terms of films that I get excited about. Uh, but you know, rewatching it now, I still have an affinity for it. Um, and it's also interesting to me that there is kind of a like a strange uh, like thing I picked up on with this time. It's like Forrest Gump is kind of like the angel of death. Because like everybody comes in, he comes into contact with it dies, you know, like his incredible good luck is counterbalanced by terrible luck for everyone in his path. It's kind of strange in that regard. Like everybody, um, I guess, with the exception of Lieutenant Dan, sort of have terrible fates. Um, so that's that's kind of a weird, interesting thing I picked up on this time. All right. Eric Childress, I take it you are a big fan of this film. Uh, yeah, uh, I am. In fact, it was uh, my number one film in 1994. Mm-hmm. So take that as you will. Um, and I, to go back, you know, obviously to my own personal history with Zemeckis, uh, Zemeckis was one of those guys when, you know, you're growing up and you're starting to pay more attention to film and you're learning about film and you lo- you know that or you become aware that films are just not these sort of these magical entities that are just kind of, you know, 
just pop up. There are films that they are crafted and made and written and performed and all this kind of stuff. And you start paying attention to who that last credit is at the beginning of a film. Now it's like the first credit at the end, but it used to be the last credit at the beginning. Um, so I, after like *Romancing the Stone*, as much as, as as many times as I watched that on cable, uh, and then saw *Back to the Future*, because there was also that idea that I would follow. Like Steven Spielberg was the first one of that realm to sort of capture my imagination. So anything with his name on it, even in a producing capacity, was going to get my attention. So lead you to *Back to the Future*, which still remains to this day my favorite movie of all time. So. To say that I have an affinity for Zemeckis is, you know, s- speaking lightly. Uh, and Roger Abbott, uh, obviously a tremendous technical achievement. To, mm-hmm. to say that Forrest Gump was uh, is sort of his first attempt at a serious movie, or, you know, or some might even more cynically say Chasing Oscar or something like that, which I don't think, I mean, the, the film is... Such a it's such it's such a weird concoction, you know. On paper, this, this you know this thing, you know, I, I'm I'm almost positive it was turned down many times before he you know Zemeckis finally got a chance to make this thing. Um, but it's 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 inter- interesting the, the the sort of the the direction of the criticism that this movie takes. Like you mentioned the the political angle, Jim, that you weren't quite certain where that come from. Uh, it, was just, it was like, you know, with any sort of instant success, there's always an immediate backlash. And there was a real harsh one uh, at the time that I still quite don't understand. And maybe Patrick will help enlighten us as to why that was and why that holds any credence. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, you know, one of the things that I heard someone once say about Robert Zemeckis is that he's, He's basically he has all the attributes and all the skills of Steven Spielberg, except he hates people, um, which is a, which is a weird which is it's a weird kind of thing. I think I understood what they meant by that. that what did they mean by that? Because I'm a little confused. Yeah, I am too. No, I, I I think what they meant by that, and they said it in just a very poor way, um, is that in Zemeckis's work, there's there's uh, a, a bit of an uh, an extra bit of darkness and a, a certainly a healthy dose of cynicism. Uh, throughout his films, and I think Forrest Gump is, in in many ways, the epitome of the, that. Because when you do have, when you wa- you see this film a first time, and you, if you're just watching the story of Forrest Gump, and you're watching it and you're sort of enjoying this this sort of this almost you know DeLorean like way in which he has inserted himself into history, and in many ways affecting uh, the outcome of history. It's just, it's it's a funny story. It's a sweet story. The central relationship between him and Jenny. Yes. Um, it, you know, the, you have all these all these things going on, and he's just this, this simpleton in a world. And then you, if you if you take a step back from it, and just look at the, the the sort of the real cynical angle of what Forrest Gump is telling you, is that the idea that you can be an idiot in this country and go further than people that are smarter than you, are braver than you, um, who do everything the right way. And you can still get passed behind because of an idiot. Now, that's not to say that Forrest Gump, you know, is a bad person. He's not. He's, he's, he's easily the, the most kind-hearted person in the entire film. And he's just doing what he could possibly learn in his limited brain capacity. But you see the success that he has, a lot of it is by accident. 
you know, he doesn't, you know, just, I just heard someone, you know, tell me to invest in a, a fruit company. It turns out to be Apple, and he makes, a, you know, a million dollars and whatnot. Um, but I think there, there's something really subversive about that idea Ooh. of this sort of interpretation of America. And I think that's, that's <laughs> something really interesting about it's this. It's almost stuff. like you're I was, saying I was, that, okay, uh, I was half expecting this. So yeah. you do agree that there's the famous story of backstage at the Oscars, I guess, Tarantino congratulating Zemeckis saying that he loved Forrest Gump because it was so subver- it was so su- sub- such subversive satire and you agree that this is you take the the approach that this is a satirical film Oh, I never, I never heard that story about Tarantino. Everything I heard about Tarantino was that he just completely was pissed that he Pulp Fiction didn't beat Forrest well, Gump. No, yeah, he's a fan. Actually. There's a, there's a fan. Yeah, there's a famous story where he said, "I thought it was brilliant satire," and then Zemeckis mm-hmm. replies, "Finally, someone understands me," and that's, that's the story. So, but that yeah. is. That is I've how you feel. Heard, I've never heard that story, but I do agree with. But I, I do agree with that sentiment. You know, I, I think that there's there's an there's an absolute underlying sweetness to the film that you can you can look at the film as a satire. You can look at it at the half empty kind of uh, the the way that we're we're discussing it right now and come away with it from a, a completely different point of view than looking at the half full and look sort of looking at it through Forrest's eyes, if you will, uh, in that there is that the that there's a, a a triumphant story and a and a happy story. Um, the other way, it's a it's a satire, and I think there's a there's hmm. travels through a lot of uh, Zemeckis's work. It's certainly it's there in Back to the Future. At the end of the Back to the Future, <laughs> the film essentially is a satire of you know the Reagan era yuppieism. That all the happiness that they achieve at the end of the movie is essentially becoming a bunch of yuppies. Hmm. You know, I, that's an interesting <clears throat> angle. That's it. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, no, but I mean, I, this, this, no, this is actually going to make the conversation much more interesting because in, in believing that this is a satire, a lot of the things I find you know, offensive and horrible about the film, you, say, you don't say aren't there. You just think, yes, it's purposeful that, and it's making fun of that, yeah. um, which actually gets down to the conversation of how do you determine something is a satire? What about – which is what I want to ask you because okay. I don't believe this film is a satire. I don't believe okay. – this is something I was – this is actually one of the key things I was watching for uh, this time because I've always been curious about that, that story I said about Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think a film operates as a satire, but I, I guess I guess my question to you is, number one, um, as a critic, do you sort of – believe in sort of the death of the author in that it doesn't matter what Zemeckis says he intended or what what he was going for whatever is on screen is the film do you agree with that sort of um I I do at times I I, I do at times that I think that that the film speaks for itself I think you know as, as as the three of us obviously are well versed enough in film and follow enough directors, obviously by what this podcast is meant for, yeah. um, that we we are completely understanding of not just the auteur theory, but the idea that directors will follow similar paths in their career, that they mm-hmm. will they will deal with very similar themes. Zemeckis is chock full of them, maybe you know, at, at, at least as much as Spielberg, if not more. Um, so I yeah I mean I think that that in in many cases you look at what's on screen um and you know then you if you hear like a director you know if a director has to give you the interpretation at a Q&A afterwards 
I don't think he succeeded. Yeah, I okay? definitely agree. But at the same time, I think that like watching Forrest Gump and knowing when when you when you see a, a, a you know a, a director's twentieth film as opposed to maybe his first or second, you. I don't want to say give them the benefit of the doubt, but you understand where a director's point of view and their perspective is coming from well enough that you understand what is sort of lying beneath the surface, what lies beneath, if you will, of what the director is going for. And I think with Forrest Gump, I think that is absolutely the case. Now, did did I necessarily see it as a satire as a 19-year-old guy in 1994? Oh, no. Not not entirely. Yeah, Not the first time I saw it, certainly. Forrest, Forrest Gump is definitely, I, and I should say this, Forrest Gump is a film I watched a lot as a kid and I loved as a child um, because it was, it's because the main character is so simple, it's the kind of, by quote unquote serious movie, I mean movie that won a bunch of Oscars and shit, it's, ah. that, it's, the, it's one of the only examples of something like that that I could understand in, you know, when I was, say, 10. So this is a film I loved a lot, then I didn't view it the way I view it now, back then. Um, I guess my question is, what about this film makes it a, makes it a satire as opposed to just celebrating those things. Well, I don't know if I mean, the, the, the word satire, I mean, when you, when you think of satire, you think of, you know, like films like, say, Wag the Dog and stuff. They're taking a very obvious uh, angle on something and taking and, put, you know, putting okay. a, a spin on it. Okay, what about, what, okay, how about, let me, yeah, that's a good point. What yeah. about this film makes it subversive as opposed to celebrating? Well, I think I explained that already is that the idea that you what you're seeing on the surface is the idea of this very this simpleton this you know this this land, you know this sort of guide through american history that is basically getting by by not really succeeding he's you know it's just, <laughs> he's just kind of backing in to everything and the idea that the american dream can be achieved you know i mean look at look at the landscape where we live now you know, as opposed to 1994, where you can, you're literally being, you're famous for being famous. You're backing in to something that you'd never really earned, okay? <laughs> Forrest Gump is just living his life by a ground set of rules established by his mother, okay? Very simplistic rules that, you know, it's just like, you know, just, you know, be, be good. And, you know, Jenny tells him to, you know, to run away and whatnot. And he, you know, he obviously in, in war, he learns to turn back for his friends and his buddies and whatnot. But he becomes a hero for essentially following, you know, a set of rules that like he's a Terminator in a way. It's almost like you're saying Forrest is Homer Simpson and everybody else is like Frank Grimes from that particular yeah. episode. I suppose you could, you could make that assumption, sure. Because, <laughs> like, that's the thing is, in that episode of The Simpsons, it's just like Homer is constantly being celebrated for doing all these ridiculous things. Yeah. And Frank Grimes is constantly being swept under the rug or being overlooked and overshadowed constantly and not getting ahead. But I just... It's funny to think of it in those terms and... I mean, that's... Is that how you view view the film, Jim? Or did you just view it straight? I I did view it as a... I mean, it's funny when you think of it now and you sort of read the backlash and, you know, uh, he... I I mean, hearing him maybe... uh, His intention was to create a satire, uh, it 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 doesn't play I don't believe that... It doesn't play I have listened... 
to and one of the reasons I asked about Death the Author is I've listened to the commentary track uh, okay. on the DVD and which I have not. I have okay. not heard that. Yeah, and and I and I don't like I I don't believe that you should be able to submit this as evidence because I do believe that a film is itself whether uh, you know, the film speaks for itself, whether or not the director thought they were doing something else. But Zemeckis, every, everything he says about the film, and this could possibly be just the surprise success, I, whether or not it's making fun of the American dream and it's, and it's sort of uh, uh, mocking how you can just back into all these things, I don't believe a lot of the people in the Academy look at it that way, and I don't believe a lot of its success comes from that. So it's possible that Robert Zemeckis is just trying not to offend anyone who likes it without looking at it. As or maybe the, the joke's all on, on all of them. Like, yeah, a, guy, yeah, yeah. like a guy like but, Bob Dole, but, you know, he, he lionized this movie as like upholding traditional family values, and a lot of people were sort of chastising it in a way yeah. as being like this conservative ideology. My, my point is Robert film. Zemeckis in the commentary, he speaks nothing of this and only speaks of it. Like, for example, one of the key lines I remember, cause it was just the dumbest thing I'd ever heard was he says, uh, was he said, Lieutenant Dan represents the part of America that was crippled by the war, which is like just one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Cause that's not subtext. It's text. Like that <laughs> is, he is like crippled by the, so it's just, well, yeah, like, well, so he's giving, well, he's telling you in the commentary. I mean, if you're not, if you don't want to hear what a director has to say in the commentary, then don't listen. No, no, no. My point is, I don't. I, my point is that is one of the reasons. Just because of the way he speaks of the film in the commentary, that's one of the reasons I don't believe it was intended. I do believe it was intended as sort of uh, the way Bob Dole saw it. I don't believe it was intended to mock those things. I think that it was really upholding those things. And my key reason I can't view this as satirical or subversive is it's verbs, the way it operates. It, yeah. None of all of the humor it's and all of the way it works, it's completely straight. It's asking you, it's saying, remember when John Lennon was assassinated? Remember when this person was assassinated? Like, to me, this is just like the biggest baby boomer jerk off of all time where it's just <laughs> every single song and there's hardly any scenes that don't have some piece of popular music behind it. Sure. Every single song is something you'd hear on the radio. It doesn't want to threaten anyone. And it's just, Hey, remember when this happened? Remember when this, like, like the part where after the, and number, no, I mean, I also think all of the humor is horrible. It has sort of this key joke that it does a dozen times. Uh, and it gets more and more tedious every time, which is uh, in his narration, Forrest Gump will say something and then someone will then say those exact words. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that to me just get it's that's I, I don't think the uh, film is simple. He's not going to say it in any other terms. He's not going to say it with the the sort of the elegance that you and I yeah, might but it's, describe no, no, past yeah. memory. He's gonna tell I'm not you saying exactly it's not real. Happened. I'm not saying it's not realistic. I'm saying it's not funny and it's played for humor. Like, I think it's funny. Okay, I know you do. I'm saying I don't. Uh, And I don't think the film has that extra layer. I don't think that film has the extra layer where it's asking you to consider how he achieved all those things. It's asking you to celebrate him. Everything about this film is celebrating Forrest Gump, and none of it is questioning. There's not a single moment that plays as questioning. It's only if you go back and look and you decide to look at it at a certain angle. And I... I mean, it's interesting that you see that, but I don't think the film actually supports it. I think the okay. film works is just primarily as 
sort of yet another piece of culture, which is just telling baby boomers how great they are and how fascinating their lives are. Okay. Oh, wow. Two, two things. Okay. One, if, if, if the movie is just completely celebrating Forrest Gump, it, it has the angle that Forrest Gump doesn't even really understand the success that he's achieved in his yep. life. So if, if, the, if you think the movie is celebrating success, then isn't that more on you than the film? Because it's not like the movie is saying that Forrest Gump, you know, understands everything that he's achieved. Okay, which but why is that a requirement for like it still celebrates him as a good person and then he's rewarded for being a good person. That's the yes. morality of this film. Okay, well what's wrong with that? Because it punishes everyone else who didn't do exactly what they were told. Jenny joins the countercultural movement and gets AIDS. Like he, he is celebrated for exactly what Bob Dole said, upholding good American values, which is joining the army when he's asked and being a good soldier. And never questioning anything, and everyone else who does question anything gets punished horribly. That's yes. the problem with that. Satire. It's <laughs> satire. You got that the course of it. You think that you think that, if you think that Zemeckis is sitting there like purposely punishing, or or Winston Groom for that matter, punishing Jenny and Lieutenant Dan uh, because that they're following. The, their, their their destinies, if you will. Uh, that, I mean, I mean, it's not that. I mean, Jenny doesn't just you know like she joins the counterculture and gets AIDS, you know, which is was like one of the big arguments at the time. It's That's like, true. Oh, she like, also becomes a drug addict. Yeah, I forgot becomes, to mention that. Part. Yeah, she becomes a drug addict and makes a lot of very poor choices in her life. She was also abused as a mm -hmm. child. It's not like these characters are just completely one dimensional. Okay, you know, Forrest Gump is more one-dimensional than any of the other characters in the movie, particularly Lieutenant Dan. So I think that argument doesn't really, you know, make a, make a lot of sense. And if you you seem to have a, a really nasty streak against the baby boomer culture culture, um, yes, and, because yeah, it is so pervasive. Yeah, okay. I do. Um, and <laughs> and yet, um, so shouldn't shouldn't you celebrate the fact that some of these people are being punished? No, 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 no. I don't I don't I don't hate everyone who is born in between this year and this year. I don't hate okay. the generation. I hate the cultural the way that the generation has seized the culture and that there's still fucking Led Zeppelin songs and commercial and just everything is about the culture. The fact that every song covered on American Idol has to be from there and and every song that has to play in this movie is a top 40 hit from that from those years and I don't think you can view it as satire because it's not the way the movie operates the movie celebrates him it doesn't question anything it doesn't it, it's it's played completely straight because it is completely straight that's how I feel about this film and I, I, I mean not to mention not to mention all just the problems I have watching the film such as he's a cipher so I don't he, I don't I really don't like you know main characters as ciphers unless it's about you know, I mean, everything that's good about this movie was done better in either Being There or uh, uh, fuck, what's the Woody Allen movie where he inserted himself into Zelig? Zelig, yeah. I I think oh, everything yeah. that does, I mean, I don't. This is not a bland movie, and I do. I remember we when we had Ren on for. Uh, um, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which Curious Case of Benjamin Button is a very much a retread of this film. Yeah. And I did defend this film as being better than Curious Case of Benjamin Button just because it's like it actually is, is telling a better. story. 
Yes. <laughs> Which, I've always seen this. Benjamin Button yeah. is not, doesn't tell uh. a story. Like, this movie tells a story, and this movie is technically capable. I mean, some of the special effects haven't aged well, uh, especially LBJ. As far oh, as, yeah. That, that part is the worst. But no movie from 1994 uh, really has aged well special effects-wise. You can't hold that against the film. No. I think it's technically well-made. I think it it does have a strong like very fast pace for a two and a half hour movie i'm not i don't think this is the worst movie of all time it's just one of it's a movie i hate more than than most movies (laughs) because of what it represents and um it's interesting to hear that reaction though presents though i don't understand these these sort of this extreme (laughs) culture of the hatred of this film where people say what it represents. Yeah. No, so I, 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 it, it seems like it's, it's a far reach and you're, you're squeezing, you know, that, you know, the, that reach as, as hard as you possibly can to make a point that I think at, you know, at best is an interesting read on the film. Okay. But at worst, I think is just complete hogwash. It's funny. Cause that's how I feel about viewing it as satirical. <laughs> is that it's you have to reach pretty far to say that's ha- the mode of operation of this film but th- the way this film works is w- what's actually happening because there's not like the plot is things happen um there's not like this there's no cause and effect in this movie it's very episodic the way that, yeah yeah the way this movie works is it's taking us through history mm-hmm. all right it's taking us through a very specific part of history it's taking us yeah. through the history of they, the birth of rock and roll to the Vietnam War to you know the folk scenes in the middle and the Vietnam War and then there's the part in the 80s where I I'm imagining the part where he's running is is sort of a, a, a satire on sort of new age guruism mm-hmm. uh, and stuff like like it's taking us through all that but it doesn't it doesn't actually. Ha- like it doesn't actually say anything other than these things happened, and it's well, not. I don't think it's saying anything about I them. I think that if you can't reach, if if, if you haven't, and I, I don't want to use the word reach for satire because I think it's there. But I think that if you haven't haven't gra- re- found the the idea of where this film is a satire, I think it's the running segment that I think makes it pretty clear, and that that that's a very specific section of the movie where you can look at it from two different perspectives. On one hand, if you're w- watching the movie straight, you're watching a man literally run away his pain mm-hmm. you're yes. watching a man literally run away for three years trying to run away from the, 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 the horror of his life which is just losing the love of his life Okay, and being rejected by the love of his life and him having to sort of run across the country back and forth for three years until he can finally you know, rest with that pain on the other hand He's running through, and he's literally becoming the cult of celebrity. He's creating fads just by running. He's not trying to do anything, and everybody else is making something out of this guy. He's just running. But to me, it's the only part of the film that works in this manner. No other part of the film operates the same way. Yeah, but can't you view take take that section of the film and apply it to what you have just seen for the, the previous two hours? But then why don't I just take another section of film where everything's played completely straight and he's viewed as a hero? Why don't I ta- apply that to the whole film? Because to me, that, well, you, can't, you can't just pick one scene, say that's the Rosetta Stone and view the whole – that's how you get Room 237 or the documentary about The Shining where people are like, oh, The Shining must be about the moon landing because this one scene happened and it's viewing uh, 
if you view the work as a whole, I don't find it. It's not satirical. At least I do not find it to be satirical at all. Okay. I never found it to be satirical, and I never really or subversive. Again, or I don't want to. I don't want to get bogged down. And I in also definitions. didn't really get up in arms about what it has to say politically. I just uh, found I mean, it to be okay. If you want also get to the other thing, there. Are, this is a very very long movie. There are four women who who have like any kind of lines. There's Jenny, there's his mom, and then there's the two like floozies or whatever from from the New Year's Eve thing scene. And all of them are just defined by how they use sex. Yeah, uh, you're forgetting about the woman on the bench. The oh, that's right. Bench. No, okay. Yeah. yeah. Other than the old woman on the bench, the main characters, the named sort of characters, they're all defined huh. by how they use sex. But in your defense, if you go to the deleted scenes of the of the Forrest Gump DVD, Forrest Gump does have sex with both the women on the bench. So. <laughs> um, and you said you didn't. No, it was a wise edit. I, yeah, I've yeah. always viewed this as a character fable, really. Like, uh, and what is the okay? And a yeah. fable has a moral. What's the moral? Well, I really just thought it was him, sort of, uh, you know, a guy who decides not to let the world pass him by. He gets out and runs. And Everything <laughs> passes him by. Every, he he meets a, life head on, and he there's really like nothing political yeah. in that. He sort well, of he gets up and runs. I, I know I'm I'm not talking. I'm right now. I don't agree with that interpretation because he doesn't meet the world head on. Everything happens to him. Yeah, but he still faces it. He, he runs into it. I mean, he I mean he runs onto the football field and gets the job. He is approached by the 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 the, the war guy, the the army guy and he joins the army. Right. Yeah. Also, he has but so he, he runs into things and things run into him, you know. So just, the it, moral it, of the story is to allow everything to happen to you but don't Oh, no. no okay, no, I no, no, I'm asking no, no. I'm asking Jim's interpretation. I'm sorry. I know this, but I was asking cuz Jim said he saw it as a fable and I was I've wondering what I and my point is what is the message because and I was disagreeing with what he said it was because it doesn't it's not supported by the film because hmm. he doesn't have agency it happens to him but he's still taking part in that he's still actively participating no he isn't he, it's completely <laughs> passive hmm. people tell him to do things and he does them he, people tell him to join the Well, he the, could the just fucking team. sit at home and just sit on his ass all day if he wanted to. Yeah, I mean, But he actually gets out and do not, shit. But that's not, okay. uh, from the, per- the perspective as a fable, and you're going to look for a moral within that fable, then the, then the moral is very simple. If, you, if you're a good person, that you might achieve some excess in this, in this country. And how oh. is good person defined? Um, what, 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 what bad thing does Forrest do in the movie? Nothing. You know why? Because he does everything he's told. That's how being a good person is defined in this film. Mm. And wh- but where does he get his knowledge from? His what mom. Is- no, no, there's no knowledge. He doesn't mm. even know that he thinks something bit him when he gets shot in a war. There's no knowledge. He just does what he's told. Yeah, he's a simpleton. Right. That's not a good moral. That's not a good message. That's what's offensive. No, what the, what the uh, he still interacts with. People. Are you he saying still that has connections? That challenged people cannot have morals. No, we, I'm saying that saying that? that the way that everything is rewarded is to not uh, the way uh, he, the what this movie is saying is that if you will be rewarded if you just 
keep your head down and do what you're told. That's what this film says. Yes! We've come to a conclusion, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> to what Zemeckis was t- trying to say. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it as a fable, he's a good person and he gets yeah. success. Right. There so it's go. not satire. I said if you look at it as a fable, that's, that's one perspective. You can look at this film in two different perspectives. I think that's one of the brilliant things about it is that you can look at it from the perspective of a Bob Dole, and it tells you exactly what you want to see, what you want to believe. And it's going to be interesting when we talk about the next film, because we're going to get into a lot of this stuff, too, because Zemeckis follows up these themes. Yes, I, I agree, and that's also why I don't like contact. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll I'm get gonna, into the... I'm going to start crying. Yeah, I know, but... So you, so you are... So you, Eric, view yep. this as a satire, but Jim said he views it as a fable... Yeah, I can view it either way. Right, but as a fable, isn't that horrible? Isn't that the worst fable? No, it's not. It's not horrible to no, say that you should just do as you're told? That's not, because that's your interpretation of what's going on in the movie. That's all it's he true. does. That's, he has no agency. That's all he does in the film. Uh, we're not going to agree on this. We're no, just- <laughs> we don't, but I just want to understand. I want to understand where the disconnect is. That's all. I don't know. I, 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 I thought I've made my point pretty clear throughout this, this conversation that you look at it as a fable, and if he's a good person, yes, he does what he's told. He learns – what he's learned is from his mother, from his mom. Okay, He's told to run away. He learns that from the, the woman who is the love of his life. Okay, the two women, two women in the movie, you want to talk about their, you know, their definitions through sex. They're also – they're completely – it's blind love through the eyes of Forrest. If you view this film through the eyes of Forrest Gump, it's a beautiful fable. If you view it from the eyes of a real cynical bastard, which three of us actually kind of are, then you can view this as a satire. I think the film works on both levels, and that's why it's, it's, it's one of those things where, <laughs> where no, it's like no matter where you're coming from in the movie, you're right and you're wrong in a way. And I think the people that railed against this thing, it was almost like the biggest practical joke ever achieved on, you know, people who just didn't understand what they were looking at. So. He learns from Bubba how to, you know, go out and get his own shrimp. No, it happens to him. Remember, he first, he goes out with everything he learned from Bubba and he catches a toilet seat. He, shrimp happens to him. Yes, gump happens. That's the, that's the the tagline of the damn movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, no, we agree on that. I'm just saying we're, well, we're, where we disagree is what it means. Well, which is that's fine. We disagree on it. That's fine. But I'm just hmm. I'm not everything saying- you are saying, Jim, is supporting me. Really? Yeah, how, yeah. How so? Because I'm saying he has no agency and you're bringing up examples of him having no agency. Agency means having the capacity to actually act on something. He is acting he, I don't understand agency, how not me, going okay. on a shrimp he had, boat. He has and no, not. He's okay. not. I'm not staying at home in my room. I'm going out and doing something because I am choosing. Because to do no, it. no, no. He's not because he's choosing because he was told. But he's because he was told by another person. Yeah, right. Friends fulfilling a destiny of a friend. Yeah. Not, the Bubba didn't say, "Hey, go out on a shrimp boat because you're an idiot and I'm going to tell you what to do." Yeah. Said, this is, we're going to go out on a shrimp boat together. Okay, and we're going to be partners, and he's fulfilling the destiny of Bubba, who got killed in the war. That's, That's called an interpersonal, intersubjectivity interaction. Right. That's the, what that The is. other thing is, 
because he is such a cipher, none of these relationships hold any power to me because all he does is stand there passively as Bubba talks to him. That's their friendship. He was his best friend. Why? Because he talked to me as we cleaned up like that. There's no friendship there. There's no interaction. Is that not a friendship? Because there's no interaction. Why? He's Why is there no interaction? He's a simple person. All he has yeah. to do is he's a guy on a bus, sit next to him and treat him like a human being. Oh, for God's sakes, they, they turn out to be friends. Yeah. What no, I'm they, just saying that's not... Yeah. They're both right. simple minds. <laughs> and, and this movie celebrates simple minds and it punishes people who try to go their own way. Satire. <laughs> and I never and I never saw it that way. All right, you never saw it. Th- I'm all right. You know what? We've talked a lot about Forrest Gump. I think at this point we're spinning our wheels. Is there anything else about Forrest Gump that you think is interesting, other than that aspect, like just the way it was made? Anything else that either of you want to talk about? I'm good. Yeah. I'm I'm fine. Other than personal <laughs> personal personal stuff, I'd rather not review. Oh yeah, yeah. Fine. No, I totally hate your guts, Eric. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about relationships within the film that yeah. I <coughs> can relate to. It's a third, a third way of me looking at the film that won't you guys wouldn't respond to in the same way. But that's okay. I understand. Yeah. It's cool. It's been a while since Patrick and I have disagreed, so it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's just getting worse in a minute. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Contact, I don't dislike. Near, in fact, let's go ahead and have uh, Jim introduce Contact, and we'll... Okay. Wow. Contact. Lots contact. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is uh, one of the great science and religious movies, in a way. Oh, I wish you didn't start there. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Here we go. This is going to get ugly. It is. It yeah. is. Um... It actually becomes something very profound for me by the end in a way that's very similar to Cloud Atlas. Because it is not necessarily about contact with aliens. It's about contact with humanity. And the sentiment expressed at the end of this movie about finding connection with each other and having faith in the individual experiences we have. It's about as deep as a third grade teacher. It's about something that I respond to on such a profound level. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, it's it's one of those movies that I, when I wish people could feel what I feel when I watch this movie because uh, it, it's it's one it's 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 very personal experience. But I also think it's a good window into the nature of faith and the need for significance and the. Um, sort of the quest of you know humanity's hunt for spirituality, and I think that's really embedded into Carl Sagan's philosophy that he um, captured very well in in the book. Now, I, it's not a perfect adaptation. There are things that have been excised from the novel that I wish were in here, including a little bit more ambiguity with the ending. Um, but I think. Especially when you talk to an astronomy professor and his per, his interpretation of this entire story, it really like spoke even larger volumes. What, to what me. did he? I mean, could you share that with us? Oh um, yeah. <laughs> so this professor, he is uh, he's had the pleasure of being in the Blues Brothers. He was in a David Lynch movie, 
And he contact is his all time favorite movie because it really is a movie that is uh, about religious and scientific people looking for the same exact thing a sense of something larger than ourselves, a reason not to feel alone. And the whole movie is encapsulated very well with one line. And I've always responded to it because, you know, I, I feel like it, 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 it's sort of challenging in that way that I, I, when I, whenever I talk about this movie, I bring up the line where, um, Matthew McConaughey approaches Jodie Foster about the love of, <clears throat> her father. It's my favorite line in the entire movie. Yeah. And, you know, she, he asks her straight out, you know, to how do you prove your love for your father? You know, Eric, may, do you remember how that's exactly? Yeah. Because she, he's asking her uh, specifically about, you know, the, she, well, she brings up Occam's Razor. Right. Which is, is a very key uh, bit of philosophy in the movie where the, the explanation is, is that all things being equal, the simplest explanation has to be the correct one. Mm-hmm. So she's explaining that as a scientist and whatnot, and uh, he is also explaining how he, he cannot uh, believe that he, he, he cannot imagine a world where there, a god did not exist. Um, and she, you know, obviously counters that that she's a scientist, and how can he go through his life without having any proof? And he says to her, you know, very matter-of-factly, like, "Did you love your father?" And of course, she's very taken aback by that. It's like, what? What do you? What do you mean? And he goes, goes "Did you love your father, your dad?" And she goes, "Yeah, very much." And he looks at her straight in the eye and he goes, "Prove it." It's, I mean, it is a gut punch of a moment. It is an absolute gut punch of a moment. That's exactly. probably laughed at. A gut punch. Gut punch. Yeah. Well, I, that's just a okay. Go ahead, continue. That's that's just semantics. You can't. There's a lot of things you can't prove. I, I, well, that's. I mean, that's a semantic argument. That's not a gut punch. That's not like an emotional. Well, I mean, how do you? you it's know, a gut punch to her. Yeah, but why? Because it's just a semantic argument. That's just rhetoric. That's not. That has anything to do with any ideas. Hmm. Go on, Jim. Jim. Well, I mean, I just, I perceived as like, how do you, you know, manifest an internal experience? How do you actually, you know, and I think that at the end, that's kind of what the movie is trying to convey, because what she experiences is so personal. And, you know, like, it's, it's very... Uh, like fragile to her and she can't express it and she can't share it with everybody but she wishes she could and I think that it is essentially about finding that strong interpersonal connection with everybody and then maybe that includes beings from space who knows I don't believe that it's going to pop up within our lifetime um, and in the same way with God, I am firmly agnostic. So, but I understand. <laughs> Isn't that an oxymoron? Yeah, basically. <laughs> I'm firm in my skepticism yes. either way. Agnostics are historically impotent. Yes. Not firm. <laughs> good, good, good way to put it, Eric. Yes. No, I just, I, I understand 
the uh, the search and the passion that she feels throughout the entire film. And I really respond to it because she clearly and okay, you know, there's personal stakes here. I grew up with a dad who bought me a telescope, who bought me a ham radio. And this is what we, I wanted to be an astronomer very young age because I was fascinated by space and I loved Carl Sagan. And this movie just captures all those feelings and emotions for me in a clear cut way. And by being exactly that, like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what? That's what I say. Like, if it if you want to say it's simplified, fine. I don't. I think it's a very idea based film. I think it's rich in those ideas, and I think people sort of get hung up up. And I remember that being on South Park. Like, oh my god, we waited all that time to see uh-huh. the aliens, and it just turned out to be your fucking dad. <laughs> you know, contact cliche that people hate the ending. Yeah. And I don't. I am profoundly moved by it. Um, and there's probably, again, personal reasons for that. But I still think what the movie is trying to say at the very end is really, really interesting. Uh, could you just go ahead and put that into words? What is the movie trying to say at the very end? Oh, well, <laughs> I, I feel like... Just so, I, I mean, just so we're on the same ground and we can talk about it. Well, well, I, I, well just, I think we're going to get to that. Why don't Patrick? I, I think you and I we need to make an accord. Yeah. Off. I think we make an accord that we should. We we're going to we're going to approach this without shouting. Oh no no absolutely. And I this is a film. Forrest Gump is a film I've seen hundred not hundreds of times. Obviously that's <laughs> gross exaggeration. Uh, Forrest Gump is a, a film I've seen maybe twenty times just because mm-hmm. I watched it so much as a child. Um, so that's a film that I felt I knew extremely well and I could be very confident in my opinion of this is a film I just saw for the first time. Um, so my opinion of it, I'm a lot more willing to be open-minded about different interpretations. So yeah, no shouting is necessary. I just, I just want to have everyone be very clear on what they think it is trying to say. And therefore we can talk about it. So Jim, like, what do you think it's trying to say at the end? That is very, I think we should, I want to get everybody's interpretation. We're right, and I'm getting. No, yours. I mean, I don't want to get to the end right away. Yeah, before we get to the interpretation, why don't we get, why don't we get to everything that's going to sort of lead up to that interpretation? Like, I would like to hear yeah. uh, your first impressions. Uh, oh, okay. exactly. Uh, yeah, you're sort of coming at it as sort of a newbie to this, where mm-hmm. Jim and I have obviously seen this film multiple times and have you know <laughs> broken it down in many different ways. So I yeah. want to hear your first impressions about it, and we can lobby back where we think everyone is correct. Sure thing. Um, I don't believe this is an idea-driven film. Uh, I believe this is a character-driven film. It's about this character, and it's about hardship she faces, and the hardship she faces are very concrete, and they're about funding, and they're about politics, and they're about all these things that aren't the idea, the quote-unquote ideas of faith and belief and the search for meaning. They're, what she actually faces in this film are the politics of the way the U.S. government treats, teach, uh, treats the science community. They're, uh, they're the, the difficulty of fundraising. They are all of those kinds of things. To me, those are what happens in the movie. So, uh, number one, I don't 
believe this is an idea-driven film. Number two, I think that a lot of this film hinges on sort of the relationship between her character and Matthew McConaughey, and I think they have some of the worst chemist on-screen chemistry as any couple I've ever seen. Uh, I think all the scenes between them are kind of hard to watch, uh, or not all, but many of the more romantic scenes are just really hard to watch, and because they and. I don't like Matthew McConaughey's character at all. Everything he says in this film are, are very simple platitudes that have nothing to do with any type of specific religion. Ever, like when you hear him in the CNN th- uh, interview and he's going, well, does that make us happier that we have all this technology? Yes, that's what everyone – like that is the baseline like question about science. Like that is that is the opening thing that anyone would ever think of that is – it doesn't make him interesting. It doesn't mean he's a thinker. I don't understand why his character would even be involved with the government later on, as he's clearly like writing these weird new age books that aren't based on it. Like he says he was in the seminary, but like he clearly isn't uh, a Catholic or he clearly isn't Christian. Cause he's just having like crazy premarital sex for no reason. Like, like he, so he clearly doesn't actually follow any religion. He's just sort of this, well, he says he's a man of the cloth without the cloth. Right, yeah. But even people who aren't priests, who are Christian, don't believe in premarital like sex, who don't believe in just, like... Yeah, but a lot do. <laughs> I know a lot do, but if, he, if, if the key defining attribute of this character is his belief in, like, then how... In a higher power, not necessarily the Bible. All right. You know, okay. that's, that's a, that we're, we're, we're getting off the rails. Yeah, 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 we are getting off the rails. So I don't understand why he's there. I think a lot of the the sort of the resistance that Jodie Foster's character faces later on is very cliched and not actually at all how uh, not actually at all how this sort of thing would operate. Um, there seems she seems to be the only science. There's no group of science like she's the only scientist. And then there are those other guys who working at the satellites who who like does what she says, but she's there's no group. There's no one's been put together. There's not people from all these different nations who are talking about the actual ramifications of discovering other life. Like it's the fact that all of the drama of the the film comes from these very obvious sort of oh no one will believe me. I'm the only smart one here that makes that makes this film to me not idea driven. Whereas there could have been a lot of scenes of her talking with different scientists and they're actually talking about the ramifications of other life. And there are a lot of interesting books about this. And, but those ideas aren't discussed. Um, and to me at the very end, and this is, this is again, one of the things I'm more open to, but I viewed this sort of through the same lens of Forrest Gump where sort of the quintessential, like bullshit new agey way to meet another alien race is to travel. Uh, I forget how many light years across the galaxy she travels and she discovers that everything is about her and all the aliens have to say is, Oh, you should be good to each other, which to me isn't even like the way they put it isn't even as good as in Bill and Ted when they say be excellent to each other. Like, like it is the most border like baseline platitude and why did they send us this message if that's all they were going to say like to me this is a a kind of a dumb movie um but i again i'm more open 
to hear what you guys have to say about it than Forrest Gump, just on the basis that this is my first time seeing it. Wow. Your turn, Eric. I am taken aback in a way that maybe you guys weren't when I explained the prestige to you guys. Um, I I don't even know where to begin. That I mean, there, there's, there's so many boats and rivers and lakes missed with that interpretation of it, starting with, I'll, I'll grant you some of the McConaughey stuff. I will, I will, will start nice, and I will grant you, um, I, I, the, the romance, quote-unquote, angle of the film uh, has been criticized nonstop throughout the thing. Uh, watching the film, again, uh, just today, as a matter of fact, um, I, I don't look, I don't look at their relationship as one of romance. It, it begins with obviously a you know a, a rendezvous um, when they were you know a little younger, um, and they're it, to me it, it's it, you know and there's a sort of a there's a there's a kiss later on there's a handhold kind of thing. Um, it's just two two people from different sides of the aisle trying like like Jim said all searching for the same truth. Okay. And their relationship to me is more of a friendship of those two conflicting ideas and trying to sort of like a man and a woman just trying to find the, the, a perfect center between the two of them. Now, that, mm. I, might be, I might be reaching a little bit there, but I'll grant you, even, though, even the McConaughey and the government thing, um, you know, I, I'll even grant you a little bit of that, even though they got crazy Rob Lowe in there, too, who is very, <laughs> very religious. Uh, very religious-minded in the film. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's interesting that the, the first thing you started to look at was this almost being sort of a selfish uh, character piece in the way that Jodie Foster's character, that everything she goes through in the movie is based on her not being able to get funding and not being able to, to get this or get that or to be... Uh, that you said there's not a really a group of scientists. Well, there there are a group of scientists. They're all just doing their own thing. Like there's a, there's an introduction to all the scientists, and Jodie Foster, El- Ellie's character, is the last one to say what she's looking for, and she's looking for little green men. Okay, so she's obviously you know not uh, ostracized or whatnot, except by the. Uh, the Tom Scare character. Uh, just, just to be just to be clear, I mean, I I criticize the fact that there's no other group of scientists after the signal is discovered. Well, that's not entirely true either, because the, the first, the, one of the first things they do is verify it through the, uh, the Australian people, and there's all, all kinds of discussion throughout the movie, especially when they, they finally adapt to the idea that this is an alien presence, that there's a lot of stuff about the international community and how they're dealing with it. And then there's, there's, but there's no scenes. They just It's a throwaway line. Well, what do you want them to do? It's a two and a half hour movie. The, I want them to do that. That's the more interesting story to tell. No, I don't agree. Um, because the film, you know, where you don't see ideas in the film, I see nothing but ideas in the film. And I see this as maybe sort of the quintessential God versus science debate. The, the idea that not with the, the, the Jodie Foster character is all about science and the Matthew McConaughey character is all about God and what ultimately comes into the sort of the, the, the sort of the beauty of both of those you know those philosophies uh, the, 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 each looking for the search for truth in very different manners yet very much the same and then the hypocrisy of the final scenes where she's sitting there all alone with knowledge that proof to the audience that we are aware that she has witnessed something 
you know that we're we're seeing through her eyes that we assume that we are meant to assume we're not meant to assume that it's a delusion as suggested to them where other movies might suggest that it is a delusion uh this movie makes it very clear that what she's seen is what she's seen and so we're meant to sit there and watch her while all these people who so so i mean it's just so incredible that there's a scene where she's trying uh, to get her seat on the on the machine, and Matthew McConaughey's character, you know, again gut punches her again in public and says, "Do you believe in God?" And he's doing that not so much. What's interesting, I think, about that scene is that he's not using the God thing for his own personal beliefs, but also, but for the sort of the selfish thing that you're sort of referring to, and that he's just trying to keep her alive. That he mm-hmm. believes that there is a danger to this mission, and he's just trying to keep her alive. He's not using this in a sense to impose his moral, you know, certitude that there is a higher being out there. Uh, and trying to embarrass her, he's just trying to keep her alive. He's trying to. Why? Keep- but a- again, that seems to indicate he doesn't understand her at all. Because if you do care about a person, and this is like, why on earth? Like, there's no chance. Okay, let, let's put it this way. Say yeah. instead of doing this thing where you're not exactly sure how the machine's going to work, say she yeah. was just one of the first astronauts, and yeah. you and one of your loved one is one of the first astronauts. Would you sabotage them from going up just because it might be dangerous? Or would you understand, no, this is everything they wanted to do. This is their reason for existing. Well, I think... I, Why I, would you take that away? Well, because I think, well, I mean, when you're, when you're dealing with the first astronauts, I think you're dealing with a whole different set of circumstances and that there was no, I mean, I, I don't, I, I just kind of lost a train of thought there of what I was trying to to go for. Or but. say your loved one was one an explorer, the first person to explore yeah. the Arctic. Again, if everything about this person is, I need to know the truth and I need to do this, mm-hmm. either he doesn't care about her and he's like, or he doesn't understand her. No, but I, but I think that uh, it's not necessarily that he doesn't understand her. I think he understands her quite clearly, and that's why he doesn't want to let her go because he knows that she's she's going to be determined to make this happen. And I think it goes it feeds into one of the many themes of the movie of that there isn't the sort of an understanding between the God sect and the the science sect that they are they're oh, going yeah. to follow their own path, and there's nothing you can do to sort of you know dissuade them from doing that except in this case a sort of a public embarrassment to you know align themselves against the sort of the more popular thinking and to watch that being t- be turned around on her at the very end is really just i mean it, it is maddening to watch also you know, think, okay go ahead. Uh, why is no one else sent through after that they go oh it didn't work that's it that's it we spent trillions of dollars it can only work once, I think. That machine. They can only send somebody through once, if I'm not mistaken. Is it, maybe is that in the book? I don't know if they don't say yeah. that in the movie. I'm yeah. pretty sure. They don't say I, it in the movie. Though. I don't remember. Jim, I mean, Jim, I'd love to support you on that, but I don't remember that being said in the movie. Because if you want to, if this is about science, here's how science works: you yeah. test something by doing something repeatedly and then measuring results. Of course. So how come when she goes through the first time and they think that she didn't go through, how come everyone just uh, instead of 
testing it, they just don't believe her. How come they didn't put a clock in there to if they're all if they know she's going to be traveling and they've already know, oh, this is probably going to be testing relativity. How don't they don't put a clock in there to see how time is affected by the trip? Mm-hmm. Like these are things I immediately thought of. I'm not a science person. I barely graduated high school, but like these are things that are just dumb. Well, that <laughs> like, answer is also brought up, though. Why? Well, it's a cover-up? Well, yeah, in a way. It's, yeah, they suspect that there's something fishy going on with the entire thing. I mean, I don't think that they don't really say in the movie exactly how much it costs to sort of spin then, the wheels if, of okay, everything again. If, if, why would the U.S. government spend trillions of dollars building the mach- this machine and then get results, which is the 18 hours of static that was recorded, mm-hmm. and then and then... That's it, and not and not follow up on that. Well, because the movie ends. <laughs> exactly, that's my point. The, it's dumb. It, like, oh, we were out of time. Oh, well, oh, that's that. But that argument doesn't hold water. Yeah, it so, does. You're, so you're saying that when people don't behave as if they would be to show you a second mission. Okay. The, no, when, there is no section James, second mission. When James Wood says, and he looks at the camera, he goes, "That is interesting." You know. You should know in your head that that's at least convinced him enough that this isn't a hoax and that maybe what she was saying was, was going to happen, okay? So, so because it follows four years later, you, you want to know about a second test. Is that what you're saying? No, the film implies there will be no second test. Not necessarily. It's, it's suggesting that James Woods it becomes a believer, so to speak, at the end of the movie. Mm. But, okay, to me, that is the more interesting that's the more interesting story instead of this story about a – and I apologize. I know, Jim, that like this happens to line up with a lot of your personal history. But like the story of her father is the most boilerplate – like my, my parent is dead story yeah. that can be – it's the same as like Hugo where it's just, oh, my father loved me and no, there's he more richness me thing. No, no, there's more ri- there's, there's more richness here with that. Yeah, because the entire the basis of her father being dead, first of all, it sparks uh, in, in her, her disbelief in a higher power. Okay, for one, there's a scene yeah. with the priest where it comes over to her, and he basically and she, and he says to her about God's will, and she looks at him matter-of-factly and says, no, if I would have just had the pills in the downstairs basement, he yeah. might still be alive. That's not necessarily God's will. That's just an error in judgment. It's more character and, depth. Right, and also the idea that, like, you know, you hear this, you know, the, obviously the South Park thing is very funny and all. It's like, wait, you know, two hours to see the... See the alien. It's their goddamn father. You know that's that's a very that, that's what I call the contact cliches. Like everyone who who really dislikes contact, or even people who like contact, always go, "I like contact for the first two hours," and then they hate the moment where she goes to visit her dad. I want to talk about that a little bit because, because how okay? Why to you is that the most interesting place the film could have gone? Okay, well, one that's in the book. Okay, yeah. forget that. I don't, the reason movies are different, you could you can divert any way you want to. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's in the book Jaws that would have made the film worse. Right. It's good they divert from the book. Okay. Why does that? Why does that hurt? Why does a reconciliation with her father? It's not a reconciliation with her father. Okay, you're you're, yeah. you're, you're making a leap in logic there. The, what the scene represents, it plays as a yeah. reconciliation of her father. 
Well, for one, there's no reconciliation because there's not a fallout. It's not a reconciliation. It's a reunion. Reunion. Yeah. There we go. There, it plays as a reunion. So it plays as a reunion. But she recognizes as a, a, a thinking person right away that this isn't real. She's yeah. aware that this is not her father. But here's the thing, is that when you get to the scene when she's traveled all these light years or assuming that she's gone down all these wormholes and all this stuff, and we're getting to the sense that she's going to to meet whatever is out there, whatever is out there waiting for her, she's finally going to meet, and the aliens make it look like her father, so she's comforted, whatever. But the representation of that scene, as an audience member, for a moment, wherever you're coming from, wherever you're for God, science, whatever, you're meant to sort of adapt to the, pos- to the possibility, mind you, that she may have just found heaven. That she has found a beach that is perfectly, you know, perfectly sandy, and the water is beautiful and everything, and here's her father. Here mm-hmm. is the spirit of her father appearing to her, and she has, and she has the, whatever it is, it's a moment of relief, or it's a moment of doubt in her mind, that maybe, that everything she has grown up to believe is false. And that moment in the movie, I think, is what's so powerful about the representation of that beach scene and that re- reunion with her father. Absolutely. Except that, that exactly you say no, you, but you say that's what you see, no matter what where, what side you land on. But as yeah. someone who knows that there's no heaven, then you True. know that that's not the moment. Like True. that's not what the moment is. Yeah, but, but for some people, they can interpret it that way. Right, but you don't. But but here again. It, whether you're agnostic or whatever, you believe that there's no heaven, but how do you know? There's even, I mean, even a line in the movie where Jody, when Jodie Foster is asked at the courtroom, she's like, do you believe in God? And she goes, I don't believe there's evidence to support either which way. Right. right. This is all semantics. Yeah. You be- I believe that an elephant's not going to fall on me in a second, and I also know it because there's no reason and there's no, nothing backing it up. Okay, this is another problem of the film to me. It equates faith and science, and that's ludicrous. It doesn't equate them. It does. They're both coming up from it the same angle. They're both really doing the same thing. That's not true. Religion is a very different thing with a very different history that was created for a very different reason than science. No, but the faith is a belief in something that you cannot prove to another person. Yes, okay. but, but in, yeah. in, in, but in ignoring the, the fact that this experiment isn't done, like in just ignoring the fact that this is a science experiment and this is replicatable, like in ignoring all that, this completely disconnects from science. Like it can't say it's the same thing. It doesn't actually resonate. I'm sorry, not yelling. <laughs> well, it was replicatable, though. Yeah, I mean, not, not her but, but everyone. But, at the, but in the end, when she eighteen hours of static. In the end, when she comes back, everyone is acting as if it is not. Right. Why are they doing that? That's a good question. <laughs> you know why? I because think... it's a plot contrivance. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't interpret. You have, it you have uber skeptic James Woods, who the entire movie is completely. You he's know, not. Uber, he's not, he's not necessarily the thing. He's not necessarily uber skeptic. He is just an asshole. Because even once they do find the signal, he goes, "Oh, they're probably going to try to kill us. This is a wep- This is a doomsday machine." Like he's yeah. not an uber skeptic. He doesn't think that's it's- his job. <laughs> he's yeah. a national security advisor. It's his job to sort of to deal with that angle. The asshole in the movie is Tom Skerritt. James Woods is just doing his job. 
Maybe he wants to avoid representation of the person who completely changes their point of view based on whatever's popular in the room. Hmm. Yeah, Tom Skerritt's another character that's just horribly written where he seems to only exist to be an asshole. I hate characters like that. And to show off his wonderful mustache. Okay, yeah, like where they're just villains with no death and he's just an asshole and every – he just – at any given moment, he doesn't do what suits his character motivation. He just does what would the most assholeish thing to do at this time would be. Fall for assholes, that is their motivation. That's not a thing! <laughs> That's not what assholes are. Assholes are people who don't think of other people, but they are acting on some kind of motivation. One well, he wants to go with the machine. There are many types of assholes in this world, and Scomscared is one of them. Okay, and- Speaking of plot controls with power, who will do whatever they need to do to sort of be on top. Speaking and at of the beginning of the movie, that he's you know completely lambasting Jodie Foster for not you know for following this path, and then he gets a little taste of you know her belief, and he's ready to completely jettison everything he thought, if, you know, to, for his sort of instant fame and fortune. He's yeah, he's just like a one-dimensional character. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, well, Jake, again, I'm talking about how this film <laughs> operates. What what is the actual draw? What is the actual dramatic drive of this film? It's of this one character trying to achieve with all of these obstacles being thrown in her way. That's how the film operates. Hmm. You, if you want to make an idea driven film, you should make an, a film that is driven by ideas. Two thousand one does not operate in that way. Two thousand one operates in ideas like 2001 obviously not only being an inspiration to this but just being a superlative example of an idea driven sci-fi the reason no one says oh it's dumb that he just turns into I mean obviously Rex Reed and other idiots did when it first came out but like the reason that popular consensus isn't just oh it's so stupid that he goes to the end of the earth and he just gets turned into a baby is because no one thinks that it's the story of that astronaut I don't even Remember, yeah. if that astronaut is even named, everyone understands that it's an idea-driven mm-hmm. film, and that is a larger idea. Oops. This film, in being so character-driven, I'm not saying – again, I'm really interested to watch this movie. Not super interested because I didn't actually enjoy watching it. If it was a film I enjoyed but thought was dumb, then I might want to watch it again to see. But since I also didn't enjoy it, I- I'll probably try watching it again to see if I can see what you guys see. Um, but because the film is character driven, that's actually how the film operates is here's this character and here are the very real concrete and non idea things in their way. And it's about funding and it's about that, like, and it's about dealing with government bureaucracy and all of those things. That's what, that's how the film operates. When you then try to then say at the very end, oh no, it's all idea driven. It just doesn't hold up as well because that's not how the film has been operating up to that point. Interesting. I don't see them as being independent of one another. I don't think, I don't see why a film cannot be character driven and idea driven and this movie represents its ideas pretty upfront from the beginning and carries them out all the way to the final scene. They sort of gel together for me. Yes. And plus, I mean, maybe it's also because I've I used to, not so much now, have an avid interest in the subject matter, and I read the book. I should say that, I should say that too. Um, I, I, I mean, there are a lot of movies about space and about the exploration of space, space that I love. I love the original Star Trek series, and you want to talk about a series that does sort of 
combine character driven and idea driven stories. That yeah. original Star Trek TV series did that very well. Um, but and the next generation, I should, fun. but I, I, I haven't seen the next generation, but I remember the characters being kind of bland. Eh. Um, but I, but I should say another reason I probably didn't enjoy this film so much is that I don't care about space at all. Yeah, you should see your That's room. Problem. <laughs> I mean, not for, not in your everyday life, but if you if you if you don't respond to that sort of that aspect of it, then you probably wouldn't care. I mean, to me, you but know, I love, but I love, two, but my point is, I love two thousand one. I love Star Trek. There are a lot of things, but I don't actually care about. Uh, but I I just felt like I should say that just in case. Oh yeah, that's you know. Hmm. Mm. You live in very confined space. So. Well, that's 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 obviously a different thing. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's me, not having, that's me not having a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> There's nothing out there. It'd be an awful waste of space. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, agree. But my opinion is, it is an awful waste of space. Yeah. Well, we don't know. Yeah, we don't. That's know. That's kind of what I love about this movie. Yeah. Except that, except that it's not ambiguous at the end. That's the that's, thing. That's if it's what, about not knowing, how come we know at the end what happened? Do we? Yeah, we do. Because the, eighteen, of the 18 hours, hours of static, static. and there's a very yeah. long cut where he goes, "That is interesting." Like that—that's the purpose of that scene. Mm-hmm. Would you? Would you have been better off if we like if we did if like we did we you cut out the entire section of her going through the wormhole to her just falling through the thing? Would, like if if, the, if that section of the film had been cut off. And we just sort of go to her basically telling us that we, she saw 18 hours worth of stuff. How, how would you feel about that? Would, I mean, you obviously you would connect to it more in the ambiguous way, but... I, I think it would resonate more as ambiguous, but I mean, if we're getting to the point where we're rewriting the movie, there's a lot of differences I would have made before that point. Uh, I don't, I'm not really interested in... Of it. I'm not really interested in rewriting the movie. I'm mm. interested in just talking about what is there and to say what's interesting about it is that we don't know but that's not how the movie operates the movie does let you know i suppose yeah but i also get a lot more out of it on a personal level like i mean i think like you know and if you and actually if you want to go if you if you want to talk about actual filmmaking another thing that sort of zemeckis does uh, I noticed this a lot more in a movie that had a lot less substance than this, uh, like What Lies Beneath. But I feel like Zemeckis's style is a little overly slick, and it's kind of distancing. In that, like, At times. there's so much, so many crane shots in this movie, and so many just like pushes in that aren't don't feel necessary to me. And I, I will say another thing that makes this film not resonate to me is his personal aesthetic is not what I prefer. Um, hmm. Is I don't prefer that kind of very slick Hollywood style where it's just so many you know crane shots and push-ins and the cameras constantly. I mean Zemeckis's camera is constantly moving in his films, even in scenes where it is not necessary. And that mm-hmm. to me distances me from the material. And that would be maybe another reason hmm. why I didn't enjoy watching yeah. it. And that's a that's an aesthetic thing. That's not yeah. That's that's something I I to, to me I I look for. Uh, someone who does stuff like that, like Zemeckis does, 
And to, to me, I don't, you know, I, with What Lies Beneath, he's clearly, you know, he's jerking off Hitchcock. And that's yes. fine. That's completely what that film is meant to do. And he's having fun with the, 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 the sort of the aesthetics that Hitchcock started uh, and whatnot. So he's just having fun with the, a lot of the gimmicks and that kind of stuff. Um, with with, with a film like that, I'd much rather have a filmmaker, you know, moving the camera and, you know, making, you know, a.k.a. making a film rather than someone just throwing the camera just down. I mean, you know, you know what Kevin Smith is always, you know, criticized for. Yeah, I'll 100% agree with that. But to say there's no middle ground is, you know, that's. I think Zemeckis is the middle ground. I think there are a far more showier people who are just, who are, you know, again, we're going to disagree that. This film, you know, film like Contact or Forrest Gump is an idea-driven, um, but I think that that Zemeckis is able to—he's he has you focused on, I think, the content of the film more than the style of how he's making it, and I think the style of the of how he's making it is what has uh, engaged me to a lot to Zemeckis the the involvement of Zemeckis's career. So if you go back to if you go back to something as as trivial as used cars. The opening shot of that movie is is a tracking shot, for God's sake. So I mean, he's been, he's been doing this throughout his entire career. There's no reason for used cars, a really goofy comedy, to open with a tracking shot, but he does it because he can and he pulls right. it off. Right. I mean, maybe it's showy. It's some. It's not, I mean, yeah, and it's certainly not as distracting as, say, Brian De Palma. Well, like, no, there are. I hundred percent agree. There are more distracting directors um i was just maybe offering up another opinion because i'm in trying to give contact the benefit of the doubt as far as how i viewed it uh that's maybe another reason why it didn't connect to me so much oh it connects to me so much no kidding a little too much maybe like i just you don't need to apologize like i'm glad you love this i I mean apologize when when you were describing how you responded to Cloud Atlas, it was very much how I respond to Contact because, like, I get this sense of empathy with the, with humanity in general. When this movie is over, like, there, I like the idea that there are no certainties in the universe. That not knowing is what keeps us searching, and searching is a part of the journey, and the journey is a part of the destination. And to me, but to to me, one of the differences might be that there are so many plot contrivances and something like contact and that's and to me that makes it less uh less about the characters and more about the characters as stand-ins for conflict Mm -hmm. um whereas something like cloud atlas is so stylized and so that at no point like that it's all that that the fact that there are tons of plot contrivances or the fact that it's super cheesy or the fact that the cameras are moving sure, sure, just sure, as sure. much as, you know, I would say the Wachowskis actually have a very similar style to Zemeckis, but they make more arch kind of films. Yeah. Um, and I think it suits their films more than Contact, where, for example, like, again, this is so nitpicky and so specific that it feels stupid to even bring it up. So, you know, take this as you will, but like, just scenes such as after she confronts the priest and she's crying. No, I did not a fan of her trying to contact her dad on the ham radio. That's just silly. But like, then that scene ends with this big crane shot. Like that's not what the movie, I know. it's like, there's stuff like that that just makes me feel like, Oh, it's, Oh, here comes I, the crane. Well, shot. I can be forgiving. I think I am 
I can be forgiving for somebody like considering the Jodie Foster courtroom scene as being manipulative and completely contrived and her speech as being grandiose or whatever. I actually quite like the speech. I think Jodie Foster is good in this movie. Good. I like Jodie Foster as an actress. And Unlike Ren. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what like, started like, that like argument. Like Jodie Foster. That's what he said on the uh, – Chris or not the uh, David Fincher episode. That's it's what – that's just dumb. That's just dumb. Yeah, no, she's like, I think her key attribute as an actress is that she's super likable. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, even more than she is good at acting, she is someone that you root for and you like. Um, I don't think this is a horrible movie. It just, it's a very disappointing movie for me. And considering how long it is and how little I was invested in it, it was not a movie I was ever really enjoyed too much. Mm-hmm. Um, other than, spectacular scene when they first find the signal. Oh, God. I mean... That whole sequence is beautifully phenomenal. put together. Yeah. I, there, even, even with the fact that, uh, like, it begins with uh, sort of a car, like, just her, like, rushing in her car and talking. There's that amazing shot that follows her up the steps mm-hmm. uh, as she's talking on the walkie-talkie, and then, like, te- like seven, less than ten seconds later, she's talking to them in person. Like, that kind of urgency is just terrific. And the fact that uh, there are a couple times in this movie where they stop to explain jargon um, uh, for the audience. Sure. But, like, in that scene, there's no explanation. And they're just – you just seeing people do what they do and trying to figure it out and counting. And, mm-hmm. like, that's that's horrific scene. Yeah. And, and, and the discovery that the signal being put out is – like fucking Hitler is such a great reveal. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's yeah. There parts of this movie I really enjoyed, but I'm just well, over the, the scene where the first uh, machine is destroyed is one of the most gasp-inducing scenes I've seen in a movie theater, I think, ever. Like, uh, I'm holding my breath during that entire explosion scene. I I will say I think Juicy is super distracting. Uh, like I, I will agree that, with that. Uh, the setup of Jake Busey as this like weird Elvis <laughs> preacher, and there's like super slow mo shots of him both times he shows up, are just yeah. like, do you get it? He's coming up later. Like it's a little. And also, I agree with that. This is a movie that again, one of the downsides of being Robert Zemeckis and being very interested in. I prefer people like Zemeckis who are using technology to tell stories, uh, like the way, say, he had multiple people in one shot in Back to the Future 2, or the oh, way, or the way Forrest Gump is inserted in through history, uh, or, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, just the entirety of that film. But here, Bill Clinton is a little distracted. Yeah, but the, yeah, the problem with being a filmmaker who loves to experiment with technology is that then your films probably don't age as well. And that explosion, the special effects aren't great. Again, it's a, it's a movie made a while back. It's, it's can be hard to hold it against it, but it's hard for me to, to say that's a really tense or exciting moment with those two sort of problems. <laughs> uh, and that's, um, I, I would like to ask you, Eric, what you yes. think of his forays into the motion capture, uh, of, uh, of Polar Express, Christmas Carol, uh, Christmas Carol, which I two films I haven't seen, or Beowulf, which is a film I have seen and kind of like. I do like Beowulf out of all, out of those three. And since we only have a have like a half hour to go, yeah. let's uh, briefly touch upon some of his other films that we like. Yeah, well, to answer Patrick's question, I'll say I I tend to defend the motion capture thing uh, more than most probably. Uh, Christmas Carol is the one film I don't like. 
um, of Zemeckis. It's the only film of Zemeckis' career that I do not like is A Christmas Carol. Uh, Beowulf, I think, is pretty extraordinary. Um, and I think not just in the sort of the, the advancements that he made from Polar Express into Beowulf, um, it's probably of, of all the 3D movies that have come out in this, this stretch that we've had, I think Beowulf is the best of them, the best way it's used. Um, and the, I think the animation is great. And I think the story of that movie is also very telling and various story about power and lust. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a movie about lust. <laughs> that movie, I think, and I think that's that's a that's a pretty bold choice for a, a PG thirteen animated film. Um, and po- Polar Express, is, I I don't know, I have a soft spot for a nice Christmas story. So I you know I, the the songs in Polar Express not great, uh, no. but but I think Sylvester's score is beautiful. I think a lot of I think Sylvester <laughs> does his best work when he's working with Zemeckis. Um, so so I uh, you know when people say there's oh, a dead eye motion capture, just like really you know. They're dead eyes, you know, Woody, Woody the Cowboy's got dead eyes, and it's like, what, you know, what are you really, you're nitpicking. I would disagree. I would say that because Pixar films are stylized, that they come across as less dead, and they're, whereas uh, Zemeckis' films fall into sort of the uncanny valley. Yeah, I, 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 underst- I, I understand, that that's a better way to, to put it, you know, when people, because I think people are very quick to sort of, to, to jump on that sort of, that dead eye thing, it's like, oh, it's so realistic, and oh, look how creepy they are, just like, you know, without framing it or expressing it in the way that you just kind of did, where it's kind of like, um, like, I mean, Woody's a bad example, I'm just thinking of movies that have, you know, eyes that are not necessarily as, you know, yeah, real you know less realistic I guess I was saying because those are sort of like doll eyes and whatnot. Um, but yeah, no, I don't I don't have that issue that people take with the Zemeckis stuff except for Christmas Carol, which I don't like. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I just wanted to get your opinion real quick because I don't think either me or Jim has seen the Christmas Carol or Polar Express. No, the only one I've seen uh, is Beowulf, and I yeah. do like it. That's a pretty good movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's hear some praise from yeah, you, yeah, Patrick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for me? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Patrick. Let's hear some praise. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is an absolute masterpiece. and Amen. Staggering. Like, one of the most amazing things about... I watched it... I mean, that was another movie I watched a million times as a child, and it holds the fuck up. It is so good. Oh, yeah. One of the most amazing things about that film is it somehow captures... Like, you remember it in your head as this film noir, and it captures the tone as of this film noir. But then actually going... Have, watching Sweet Smell of Success, which is... I would <laughs> qu- classify as sort of a film noir-ish kind of a film. Like... Mm-hmm. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is actually, I mean, beyond the fact that it's, you know, colorful and a comedy, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit isn't even structured like a film noir. It, he somehow, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit's a very much a, like, sort of roller coaster, set piece after set piece after set piece sort of a thing. Uh, with, with actually, despite the fact that it was complicated to me when I was, like, a little kid, it's actually a kind of a super simplistic plot. But sure. it, it just, uh, just the you know Hoskins' performance and the music and just Great. I honestly that just that one scene where he's looking at his old photos and then he finds the like that is pretty much all of the pathos of the film is uh, is in that one scene and it's remarkable that how well it works. Um, I again it's a kids movie. I don't find it f- like as funny as I used to. Uh, and that's just something a problem I have kids with movies mm. with kids movies is. There's a lot of jokes that never made me laugh, but like it's an amazing movie. It's really fun. The special effects have aged beautifully. 
Yeah. Um, the animation is great. Uh, I Judge Doom is crazy. Uh, one of Zemeckis's sort of chief. I I don't think he had a lot to do with the script, but he does a very good job of a setting up things to pay off later. I mean, that's the entirety of Back to the Future is like a well constructed comedy of setups and payoffs. Definitely. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit, especially in that fight scene at the end with Judge Doom, is just a ton of great setups and payoffs uh, of setups that were later. In the- that movie's great. Who Judge Framed Doom Roger Rabbit's freaked, amazing. Freaked me out. When, yeah. When and I was a and kid. that's and that's a well directed movie. That's not you can't say oh it's a good script no Zemeckis did a fucking great job on that yes film. he did it's yeah. an exercise in pure craftsmanship in terms of being able to integrate the animation with the live action and it really captured my imagination when I was young and to this day I still watch it and my jaw is on the floor in terms of how effortless it all feels and how um, and the rights issues, like the fact that well, it exists yeah, with like all the cartoons, of Bugs Bunny and yeah. Mickey Mouse skydiving together. You couldn't just, get away with that shit. Yeah, today. it's a miracle. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and, but I think I think you know if you, yes, it is a kids movie, and yes, there's you know funny animated characters running throughout the thing and doing slapstick and whatnot. But I think the essentially the the, the at least the sort of the wraparound is is extremely nourish, and I mean the the set direct, I mean decoration and just everything about that movie just gels i mean perfectly um and i think it and i think it's a pretty solid mystery i mean it might be simplistic compared to maybe some other film noirs but it's a pretty solidly structured uh mystery with a with a tr- tremendous payoff with judge doom at the end mm-hmm. I, I believe some of the actual plot elements are actually taken from a, a, a third chinatown movie that never got made yeah, I could you could you could say that. It has that same sort cuz Chinatown is interesting where it's an LA film noir where it's also telling sort of a history of Los mm-hmm. Angeles and right. that's what that's what this film is. Yeah, someone yeah. told me on Facebook that parts of plot elements with the uh, cable car and Cloverleaf and all that were were from an unused uh sequel to Chinatown, which is great. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think it's interesting you know, because a lot was made about his recent return to uh, live action, uh, and because it'd been so long, God, it'd been what twelve years since he worked with live actors. Or I mean, well, well, I mean, like since he made you know another film that's straight, you know, yeah, not that's, animation. That's, that's that's the mistake that everyone makes. It's just like it's the first time he's worked with actors. And right, 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 right. I know. What, Clearly, he worked with actors all those in all the oh, animated course. films. Yeah, that, but like this is the first live action film since Castaway and um, Flight came out last year, and it, it's been really interesting to hear people's responses to it because I've heard, um, you know, obviously. Uh, Nick DiGiulio put as his number one film of last year, and I think both you and Colin were really high up on it as well. Number 10 on mine. And uh, I've heard people hate on this movie, and I'm more in the middle on it because I think it starts out amazingly with the plane crash. I think it's a great setup. Um, Best part of I. By the way, just real quick, I didn't finish it. Uh, I started to watch it, and then it sort of started to fall into the the thing that all like addiction movies it sort of fell into that sort of thing and I got less interested and I had other Zemeckis movies to watch so I, I was that instead, surprised best part best part of that plane crash is uh, where he tells the stewardess to tell 
his uh tell your, yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of the black box, speaking of the black box. Yeah, just yeah. like that real quick. There's no like big moment, like there's no react huge reaction shot. It's just like that. Mm-hmm. And it's out very powerful. This could happen, so you might get this out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard it described as like, you know, fearless only with addiction in it. And I, people people love to say, oh, this movie has a plot element from another movie. It's that movie meets I know. <laughs> it's not really like fearless at all. No, 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 no. It's it's not and I think that my own expectations for like, oh my god, a new Zemeckis movie mm-hmm. and you know, the idea of him tackling, you know, the the subject of addiction is interesting, but at the same time, I don't know if it really did anything new with the subject matter, despite having an incredible central performance from Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. I just think it became um, a little bit more conventional than I would have liked. Uh, and I mean, obviously, throughout his career, especially in Forrest Gump, some of the music choices are very obvious. And that happens in this film as well, to where it took me out of it just because, like, there's moments where, you know, a character is shooting up heroin and Sweet Jane is playing. I'm like, God, I've heard that in I don't know how many movies at this mm-hmm. point. Um, so it has flaws. And I, but at the same time, again, it, it ends with an incredible uh, courtroom scene that really pays off emotionally. So I, I don't think it's a, a great return for Zemeckis, but it makes me really excited that you know he's working with actors again, and he got in a great performance from Denzel. And that alone, I think it's worth watching for. I'm not necessarily in the high praise category nor am I in the hate category for his latest film. So yeah, it's. I mean, I've I've heard. I mean, I I was with someone at Sundance this year who was really they couldn't get past the the, the music cues stuff. I mean, really they they focused on that and they zeroed in on that, and then you couldn't get any word in edgewise about that. It's like you know, if you're familiar with Zemeckis, he's not a, he's not uh, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, He's very he's very big on music cues. Like mm-hmm. Forrest Gump is full of them. For example, um, you know, running on empty for God's sakes when he's running. So I oh mean, yeah, okay. I didn't say my least favorite part of Forrest Gump is when he's pushing Lieutenant Dan through the streets and everybody's talking is playing, oh, and know. then Lieutenant Dan like ref like we get it. We okay. got okay. Midnight I Cowboy. Know. I said music cues. Okay, uh, but uh, that's a music but, cue. But, but, everybody's uh, talking about Harry Nielsen. Right. Well, I think the the thing that people um, about flight that uh, they get hung up on when they talk about the film is like, oh, this is unlike anything Zemeckis has done before. Look, he's got full frontal nudity in the opening scene and sure. all this stuff. And it just and I think that, that it's such a tragic mistake to look at it that way, just because the movie's got you know it's, it's the first R-rated movie he's done since Used Cars. All of a sudden, he's doing something different when the film completely. Uh, deals with a lot of the very same themes that he's are been you know very present in his career. We, you know, we talked about contact, flight. There's a there's a complete element, underlying element about God and destiny, crisis um, of faith, kind of a theme. Ab- absolutely. Sure. Uh, and uh, and if you want to look at the, the film, you know the sort of the plane crash thing is a whole metaphor for alcoholism. You could do that, and you could think of that that's that's really mm. brilliant and original. Or you could think it's really sloppy and you know uh, been there, done that. Um, 
but but again, I think the the, the 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 central performance by Denzel, and I think the the sort of the the back and forth that you have with the movie is that whether you know you know it, it, it's it's when, when I when I talk about the God aspect of flight, you know you hear you know the, they they talk about the idea that you know it's like well God flashed crashed the plane to get him off of alcohol. And I said, okay, well, if you, you are believing that, though, mm-hmm. then you also have to believe that he's opening the door to that other hotel room to let him in. Yeah. You know, you can't have, you have to have it both ways. If God controls one aspect, then he controls all aspects. So mm-hmm. that, that's, which I think is also, you know, part of the, the, the argument with contact. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I, both ways, Christians. You can't, you, know, you can't be the guy. You can't. Okay, Ray Lewis. You can't be. You know. <laughs> you can't be. You know, winning, scoring the winning touchdown, but then forgiven, forgive, forgiven for your murders. So you know, you can't have it both ways, scumbag. I mean, I thought it was a good portrayal of substance abuse, but nothing I hadn't seen before in other films either. Mm. I mean, I I didn't necessarily like. I was engaged throughout the entire film but also i was just expecting more of that gut punch i usually get Mm -hmm. like you you were mentioning but i did get that at the end but it's also to me kind of a confused movie uh (laughs) just because of like john goodman's role throughout especially towards the end he's gonna come in to save the day with some cocaine played for comedy that's that scene is completely played for comedy. Sure, yeah. yeah. So I don't necessarily. I, don't, I mean, I don't think necessarily that again Zemeckis is necessarily making sort of a bold statement about alcoholism, nor necessarily saying that like alcoholism is bad, and we should right. all. You know, I don't think he's. Nece- I don't think he's making a statement movie, if you will, about alcoholism. I think he's telling one particular story uh, of a guy that sees signs sometimes and then decides he's going to quit but then you know shit hits the fan and life intercedes and he starts drinking again and mm-hmm. so um yeah i mean i, th- I think it's i think it's a very uh, a very telling tale about alcoholism even if you've been told that story before okay i buy that yeah and we all know that Back to the Future is a masterpiece. I don't know if we need to like go into great Back detail. To, yeah, Back to the Future is one of those films that's perfect, but also not super interesting to talk about, other than just right. repeat your favorite jokes. Yeah. <laughs> really? Interesting. Do well, you think that's an interesting film thematically? Do you think that... Well... I'm, I'm not saying it's... Bad. I'm saying it's great, but they're just well. I mean, other than the, the the suggestion I made earlier about the the satire, the the climax. Um, no, I mean thematically. I mean, no, I, I I I would possibly agree with what you're saying. I think it's just one of the most perfect scripts ever written. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and on that level, and just the idea that you know where it's it's taking you through history and it's playing with the idea um of controlling your own destiny and you know this 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 beautiful uh you know sort of reconnecting with your parents through you know where you're you know everyone has that idea just like you know what were your parents like in high school and here's a movie that you know played upon that 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 idea or that fear or that you know that joke that we all have all shared at one point what were your parents like and uh, and, and, and you want to talk about subversive. I mean, you got a, a movie that uh, one of the central plot themes is a potential incestuous relationship between mom and son. You know, when I, when I, when I met Leah Thompson, when I did uh, an interview um, 
Oh, that was awesome. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank you. That's on YouTube, by the way. Yeah. Colin put that up on YouTube. I'll add a link to that in the show notes, by the way. Oh, very good. Very yeah. good. Um, but I, I mentioned to the way of Tom, I said the 80s were a very interesting time for you because in, in like three, I think it was like three or four consecutive movies, you, uh, you were trying to pursue not only your son romantically, but then a duck. And then Andrew Dice Clay. So it was <laughs> an interesting time for Leah Thompson in the eighties. Yeah, it's it's real bad when you get typecast as someone with bad taste. <laughs> well, I think Robert Zemeckis' attention to detail in that film, especially like he's able to bring up like smallest elements and mm-hmm. yet tie it all together by the end. To where like this was a movie where you know when I first saw it, I never picked up on Twin Pines Mall. <laughs> Becoming Lone Pine Mall at the end because yeah. Marty ran over one of the pine yeah. trees. That kind of that kind of humor. That honestly, a lot of '80s comedies. I mean, Back to the Future is so you know canon now that it's weird to think about it as being different. But there aren't many '80s comedy. Like a lot of '80s comedies are. They're a lot more broad. Mm-hmm. Or they're mm-hmm. or they're like broadcast news, where where they're like super character driven. There aren't a lot of movies that function like Back to the Future, where it's mostly about you know comedy and jokes, and it's yeah. less a character driven story. But it's also super subtle. I mean, that's you can draw a direct line from you know sort of that kind of subtle stuff in Back to the Future to Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. Like you know that's right. that's the stuff that was Arrested Development's bread and butter was just jokes. Inside of jokes, inside of jokes, and, and layered. And while it might not be character driven per se, I think the film is most definitely relationship driven. I mean, the the entire relationship between Marty and Doc, and him trying to prevent Doc's death in the future, and the idea that he's trying to make his parents happy, you know, to make their future worth something. And I mean, it's one of the most underrated father son stories ever done. I mean, we oh, won't yeah. think of father-son stories. We think of, you know, Field Dreams. We think of, you know, movies like that. But here's a, here's a film about a, a, a kid trying to get his father to court his mother so he can be born. You know, and it becomes less of a selfish ideal, and it's the idea that he kind of begins to understand that when his father tells him at the lunch table, you know, um, I, I don't want to be rejected, Marty understands that. He understands mm-hmm. where that comes from. That's a that's a very beautiful moment between them. And that's honestly, it's that aspect that probably is one of the only aspects that's really missing from the sequels. Like the sequels are mostly just like kind of crazy Agreed. madcap comedy, yeah. and yeah. they don't have that emotional resonance. But I still think the sequels are well acted and well written. And oh, great comedic performances all around. Yeah. Everybody is fucking great. Yes. <laughs> and um, talk about movies that rewatchability you know i mean they can be that was one of those trilogies that would be on cable all the time and whatever point i would watch them and just roll right with it you leave them on you just leave them on i mean uh, two two is one of the most underrated films in the zemeckis canon i mean two is so crazy yeah i mean i mean almost manic yeah back (laughs) to the future two is about as crazy as gremlins gremlins two you know, Gremlins 2 gets sort of all the praise of being so, you know, crazy and subversive and sequel, uh, you know, the, sort of the anti-sequel and whatnot. Back to the Future 2 is just like going back into the first movie and recorrecting mistakes and, you know, and then creating new ones. And it's just, it's just awesome. Seeing yeah, characters a good, from a, good, a different perspective is that's awesome. A good, that's a good point. I, I think 
maybe it's not as winkingly so as something like Gremlins 2 is probably why people don't sure. latch onto it the same way. That's true. That's true. Uh, all right. Let's give our top three Robert Zemeckis films. All right, Jim, mm. you start. I always start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess this is a tradition. New traditions. Number one, Back to the Future. Number two, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And number three, Contact. Uh, Eric? Uh, I have to go number one, Back to the Future. That was obvious. Uh, number two on my list, um, I'm going to go with Castaway, a uh, film that we did not bring up tonight. Uh, and number three, I will go with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. All right. My number one would probably be Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, number two, Back to the Future. And number three, Back to the Future Part Two. Oh, wow. Nice. Very good. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, can't thank you enough for being on the show once again. Glad to be here to argue. Yeah. yeah. Did a great job. Is that the most to- heated the podcast has gotten? No. Uh, Brian De Palma. De Palma's worse, yeah. yeah. Though I, I think this is the most heated while still being under control. Like, De Palma yeah. was just madness. But yeah. This- Your anti-De Palma guest was a little nutty. Yeah. The, yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean... He's very restrained. You know, he's got his points, but he can be very restrained. Uh, yeah. I yeah, would not Matt- control myself against those comments either. Yeah, that's Understandable. true. Um, all right. So uh, next episode is going to be John Cassavetes. Uh, that's going to be completely different director. Very interesting. Yeah, we're going to be. I'm really excited because I think I've only seen one John Cassavetes film. I've and, seen zero. And yeah. I, I really want to, you know, because I love really good relationship dramas, character studies. And the, uh, he tends to make kind of long movies, but I'm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really interested in seeing because I know he's a completely influential filmmaker. Yeah, so. absolutely. Same reason. I've yeah. not seen any of his films, but uh, I cannot wait. So uh, Damon House from our uh, uh, Wong Kar Wai episode is going to be on for that. Oh, yeah. We better make sure he do- the first film doesn't get caught off again. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, of course, you can find us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Yeah, and send us an email. It's been a while since we've gotten some. But, uh, yeah, Directors Club podcast at gmail.com very good i'm on twitter at patrick rapole and my uh, film viewing journal is martha marcy nash and young dot wordpress.com and uh i i keep a little journal as well at uh, letterboxd over at instant gym which is also where my twitter is instant and if you want to read eric's writing it can be found where uh, you can find uh, most of the time at efilmcritic.com. Um, I've, along with the, the Sundance podcast I did with you, I've written a bunch of reviews for Film Threat. So you can look my nice. byline up at filmthreat.com. i got some Sundance coverage there. Uh, but uh, the Film Critic right now, the, the, the Critic Watch seek, uh, segment is uh, where I most concentrate yes. on. Yeah, uh, so. Eric Eric has uh, laser sights for uh, quote whores yes. and uh, unscrupulous film critics. Like uh, Peter Travers, maybe? You're Peter Travers. Yeah, Peter Travers is the the worst of the worst in, in many ways. <laughs> yeah, I almost kind of like, like, I almost, I almost, I want to make an Ed Wood kind of movie about Earl Dittman, where he's just a guy who genuinely loves bad movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> he's they, almost endearing. Yeah, he, Earl Dittman is, that, is that, that guy, I mean, what you hear about a lot of these quote whores from, from, the, from the industry, basically, is just like, oh, they're, they're such nice people. 
you know, and, but, 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 but they have such horrible taste. You know, it's that, <laughs> that's sort of that second whisper that you get. Like, they know they suck, but they're such nice people. It, but then there are you know, people like Sean Edwards who are, you know, eh, what you hear about them, not, uh, not very favorable. All right. So, and of course, you can always hear Eric and Colin on uh, Nick DiGiulio's uh, WGN Midnight Movie Reviews every Friday night. So yeah. be sure to tune in because that's always fun to hear. And, uh, you know, I might as well just quickly make this announcement because I happen to be very proud of this booking. But uh, in April, my hero from WGN Radio, Nick DiGiulio, will be on the podcast. We'll be heading over to his home to talk Kevin Reynolds. That was his choice. So he's really excited to defend Waterworld. <laughs> well, it's he's, a very defensible movie. Yeah. I'm 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 really excited because he's he's one of the main reasons why I am the movie freak that I am. So it'll be great to talk with him in person and uh yeah, that's a really great uh episode to look forward to in the future. So um that'll about wrap things up. Mm-hmm. Any other other final thoughts? Uh drive safely. Yeah. All right. All right. And uh, stay tuned uh, for a very special uh, announcement at the Movie Co. in April. There you go. Can't wait for that. Yeah. Thanks again, Eric. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Hope you'll invite me back someday. Oh, yeah. Hopefully once a year you'll be back. Let's find something that Patrick and I agree on. That'd be great. Hey, you turned me around on uh, Prestige. I like that movie a lot more now. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good to know. Right. Maybe it'll happen with a contact. Maybe contact. Forrest Gump, I think we're too far in the <laughs> Yeah, fingers crossed on contact. Anyway. Okay, so join us in two weeks for the John Cassavetes episode, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks, right. everyone. Goodbye. What are you looking at, butthead? Hey, you. Get your damn hands off her. Well, this baby hits 88 miles per hour. They're going to see some serious shit. Maybe I should go to like a computer store and ask them some questions. <laughs> okay, this like, isn't a, this isn't a problem with the audio, but why are you talking as if you were like slowed down? Maybe <laughs> I should go to the computer store and ask them if uh, any questions. It's sort of like Gary Cole from Office Space. Yeah. <laughs> Forever.